Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 95 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you'll hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're in the countdown to 100 now. We're in 95. We're, we're getting, we're almost to 100, which is a frightening thing. There's not many things in my life I've done 100 times. Okay. I can already tell just from immediately saying that that's not true. Do lots of things at least a hundred times. Yeah, you've done many things. You've done thousands of times. <laughs> peed, like peed, thousands and thousands of times. What I'm trying to say, Matt, is I've only had sex three times. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's pretty. It's, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> no, um, but you made the most of you made the most of each encounter. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of things you can do three times, there are three ways to listen to Through the Years. Uh, there's the Pro Wrestling Only feed, Search for Pro Wrestling Only. That's a feed with year, literal years and years, probably on more than a decade now of podcasts you can peruse. Then there's the usual Through the Years feed, which you get from just looking up the show. And then, of course, there's YouTube, where we get like one or two really nice comments an episode. And most people don't listen that way, but some crazy people do. So it's there for you. Just search for the episodes on YouTube. Matt uploads them because he's good that way. And that's that. So we can get to the show because there's a big show to get to. But first, there's a couple bits of – they're not even really news. They're little tidbits up between the last Ring of Honor show and this one when I was coming through the newsletters. And this one, one of those funny little ones you see sometimes, Matt, where you go, that didn't turn out the way people thought. I think we've had another one of these recently. But this one comes from the Pro Wrestling Torch, and they write in the Torch – among the names mentioned by Ring of Honor management to benefit from the re- recent roster changes in Ring of Honor include Jarrell Clark, Jason Blade, Kid Mikazi, Crazy J, Lotus, Sterling Keenan, and Shane Hagedorn. Uh, I think one of those people, Shane Hagedorn, would be still be with the company by the end of the year, I think. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, there's a big turnover in the roster. Uh, throughout 2006 into 2007. I mean, I guess there always is, right? Like, yeah. in these, on these indies during this era, just things are in flux. That's kind of like the nature of independent wrestling, right? Yeah, we, we kind of talked about this on a recent episode too, I think, but I, it's still kind of amazing. I think one of the more minor stories, but like an interesting little sub story come out in recent shows has been all, not all of those guys, but a lot of those guys, Jason Blade, Kid Mikazi, Jarrell Clark, the Irish Airborne, and, uh, they didn't add in that list, Jay Fury. And it's like, you would think that the odds would have been good. At least one of those guys would have stuck. Cause so far they've all put in solid to good performances. And when you're trying, I realize when you, you, um, push new guys, you know, a lot of times necessarily guys won't stick, but it's kind of crazy that literally not one of those guys that all basically started pushes around the same time stick with the company. Yeah. It'll be interesting to like, a year from this show, like when we get to like early, like March 2007 to compare the rosters and decide if they made good decisions. I mean, I'm trying to think of like some of the guys that are there. Um, they were just starting to use Generico and Steen again by early 2007. I don't think they were quite established on the roster at that point. Obviously, Morishima would be there, Brent Albright. So it'll mm. just be interesting to compare like who these these younger flying guys were replaced with. And it's interesting to see that our friend Shane Hagedorn, like 
for the first year of the ROH students being used, obviously it was all the focus was around Davy Andrews as he was said to be CM Punk star student. But with Andrews gone, it seems like Hagedorn, at least for now, has taken that the the pole position of maybe the one student that will get slightly more than getting completely squashed in the plans. But yeah, we'll see how that progresses. Yeah, they haven't really started uh, using him as much on the the main shows on the DVDs. Uh, yeah. at this point to the, the part where we're reviewing, but I mean, I watched enough ROH to know it was, it would be coming fairly soon, mm-hmm. you know, and within a few years, he'd be associated with, you know, some, some pretty major acts, right? That, the Hangman 3 and then the Kings of Wrestling. So yeah, uh, Shane was definitely on the rise. And uh, the other story, it, it's something that we, we I think we discussed in more detail a few episodes ago around the time of Milano Collection AT's last uh, show at the company, but I'll read the first half, even though this kind of recaps that. But then the second half is more of an original quote, which is somewhat interesting, I would say. And we we always, uh, you know, Matt, our goal on the show is to be nothing but at least somewhat interesting. So uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch writes, Milano Collection AT also gave his notice to Ring of Honor. He was rumored to be unhappy with his pay. Another factor that may have played a part in his departure is that Ring of Honor is entering into a working relationship with the Dragon Gate promotion in Japan, which is his former company. One longtime Ring of Honor wrestler tells PW Torch that recent departures of Ring of Honor wrestlers in the past week doesn't hurt because there's always another wrestler out there ready to step up and fill their shoes. Quote, I do know that if guys leave, it's really not a big deal, he says. There's always another guy who's going to step up and take the ball. Ring of Honor makes stars. It really does. It's an ongoing circle. No one ever heard of Austin Aries two years ago. No one ever heard of Matt Seidel two years ago, and so on and so forth. If anybody departs, it's just an opportunity for someone else to become a star and step up. I, I just I just hear the um you know kind of like the OG indie fans being like oh, I heard of Austin Aries three years ago I heard of Matt you know like but I get what he's saying yeah I don't know who this unknown wrestler is I'm trying to go through my head like the wrestlers I know for a fact at least talked to the torch that I know for a fact because they were on the record at times were Samoa Joe. Jimmy Rave at least did a torch talk with them. We'll have quotes later in in this episode for, to the PW Torch direct on the record quotes from Austin Aries. Although it'd be funny if Austin Aries gave this quote because he was like, "No one knew who I was two years ago." That would have been a funny thing. But um, <laughs> this is such a when I was reading this quote, it was such a, a kind of moment in time because for years in what I would call, you know, one of the golden ages of like us indie wrestling or even worldwide indie wrestling, there was like a 10 year period where what this person is saying is true. That if anybody departs, it's not that big a deal. It's just an opportunity for someone else to come in and step up because there was such a depth of talent. It felt like, you know, guys could get sucked up. And I remember there was a certain point, I would say around the time, where NXT was really vacuuming up the star, vacuuming up the stars and New Japan was, you know, starting to suck up a few more. And then AEW came where there were still people that were kind of saying like, Oh, the Indies will thrive. Like there's always, they always replace them. And I think that was the kind of moment in the months that followed that where people started to realize like, Oh, there is a limit to this. Like I'm not saying there aren't good wrestlers on the Indies right now. And there isn't even good matches on the Indies, but there did reach a point where it was like, so much talent was getting sucked out of the indie so quickly that you could not replace it all seamlessly like month after month where the period we're in right now, you really, at, at least at the pace that the talent was getting signed up, you really generally could like 
Ring of Honor could lose a few guys to TNA and it was okay. You know, WWE could sign one or two big names like a CM Punk and it was okay. But there became a point, I would say, in the last three to five years where that changed, I would say. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, this was still the era where WWE, like, straight up didn't want guys like that. You know, like, it was... It was, you know, a frustration uh, for fans. Like, you know, even though we wanted to see guys that we liked stay on the indies and be able to wrestle the way we like to watch them wrestle, there was still, I think, a lot of people out there that were rooting for some of these great wrestlers to get, you know, national and international profile in a, you know, big forum. And, you know, there was just this level of, not despair, but discouraged you know we weren't really encouraged with the possibility that they would ever get those opportunities to really show what they could do for a major audience and you know there was kind of this push and pull of do we want them to stay on the indies or do we want them to go because a lot of them we really thought was were never going to go and some of them never did but a lot of them did a lot of them did and you know some of them got really big opportunities some of them got medium opportunities um but you know like just WWE alone within a few years, besides CM Punk, you know, they would have Brian Danielson, they would have Matt Seidel, um, you know, there were, there were other guys as well. Um, took years later, eventually they got Roderick Strong too. Even, uh, they, they brought Jimmy Yang back for, uh, for a little mini push, mm-hmm. very mini push, the miniest of pushes, I would say, Jimmy Wang Yang got <laughs> when he came back. But it was something. He got vignettes and stuff. Yeah. So that brings us to Arena Warfare which took place March 11th, 2006, at the new Alhambra Arena, a.k.a. the ECW Arena, in front of a reported crowd of Matt, for the first time, I believe, in through the year's history, I can't find an observer number for the show. We always use the observer number to be um, consistent with ourselves, even though we know the observer might not always be accurate. It should at least be consistent within itself. But in a weird hitch, Dave does not publish the number for the show, which is weird because this night was a double shot with CZW, and in both the, like, you know, he always publishes the results of all those shows that happened in a given week, and he gives the attendance number. Even though they happened on the same night, back-to-back in the same building, Dave lists the attendance for the CZW show, 700 fans, but he gives no attendance for the uh, Ring of Honor show. And sometimes when I can't find an attendance for a show in The Observer, on the rare chance of that, you can find it somewhere else. I looked at Cage Match, I looked at Wiki, I looked at the Torch. I, I can't find an attendance for the show. So I'm gonna assume it's somewhat in the range of seven hundred probably. It felt not so different when I was there from the other shows in Philly at the other building that were happening, you know, around that time. So not as much as like the next couple where they'd where they do the uh the big CCW versus ROH match and the Cage of Death, like those are bigger, but the other Philly shows that I was at, you know, prior to this felt not so different from those. And I actually have a couple of questions for you being there, but we will get to them in uh, just a second. First, I guess we should introduce this as basically uh, I just mentioned the story behind the show. We'll go read an observer quote that just lays it out that Ring of Honor is doing another joint program with CZW on March 11th, with Ring of Honor doing a 4 p.m. show and CZW doing an evening show, both at the old ECW arena. This is because both CZW and Ring of Honor were surprised at how well they drew in a difficult Philadelphia market on January 16th when they ran the joint show Brian Danielson versus Chris Hero Angle. So, yeah, in a sense, this is them just redoing what they did on the 
on Hell Freezes Over, except the difference was that time CZW got the afternoon shot spot, I believe, and Ring of Honor got the usual evening start time. And they were in, and they were in different buildings. Yeah, yeah, different different they sides were, of town, completely different sides of town. Yeah, so this is closer together. They're actually in the same building, and Ring of Honor is now taking the lesser spot for the show. And um, it's interesting. Uh, this quote kind of makes it seem like maybe it was CZW even helped them because uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, Ring of Honor is set to debut at the former ECW Arena on March 11th, which was made possible due to the working relationship between CZW and Ring of Honor. The main event was supposed to see Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe face Loki and Christopher Daniels, but Loki's departure from the company has forced Ring of Honor to cancel that match. So I also just want to say this is a possible correction. I think I said this wrong. I'm not 100% sure. I believe I said on a recent episode that that tag match that got canceled for this show was scheduled for best in the world. Well, according to this torch, I must have misread it or maybe I saw something else. That tag match was originally supposed to be the main event of this show, Arena Warfare. But yeah, this was a Ring of Honor's first show in ECW Arena. I'm... I was going to ask you, but maybe I'll, there's still a couple more quotes, Matt, that actually might lead to my question better. So a couple more quick notes. First, uh, the observer wrote the show contained a lot of stalling as they were waiting for Samoa Joe to arrive in the building after wrestling in Ciudad Madero the night before in Mexico. So that will be something we will talk about tonight. Uh, Okay. First question for you, Matt, did you go to the CZW show later that night? No. Wow, you are not a wrestling fan. No, um, <laughs> kind of, kind of true. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll tell you, this is how big I was into the CZW thing. I was not a ECW, I mean, a CZW feud at this time. I was not a CZW viewer, but I went out of my way to get this CZW show this night just because I was like, I can't miss a chapter of the CZW Ring of Honor feud. I also, yeah. I also got that DVD when Two Worlds Collide, just for the record. I did not attend the show. It was just too long a day. I had to drive back to New York. But Yeah, understandable. But I did watch that show. But uh, I remember, like, I have very vague memories of the show except for the main event, which I thought was really good. But I remember enjoying that show well enough. And, in fact, uh, The Observer gave some highlights of it quickly. We're not going to run down the whole card, but they kind of, covers the pertinent ones for a Ring of Honor fans. So he wrote, in highlights of the CZW evening show that drew 700 fans, BJ Whitmer came out and helped Kevin Steen beat Super Dragon. Steen had gone the mic before the match and begged Ring of Honor to take him back because working for CZW is miserable. So yeah, for those who don't know, um, Kevin Steen has talked about this in shoot interviews where this was not like something Ring of Honor asked for. He asked, I think he said he asked Gabe if it was okay for him to do that. But he, this was basically him shooting his own angle, the idea of, you know, I'm trying to be a heel in CZW, so what better way for me to be a, C, a heel in CZW than to be like openly begging for Ring of Honor to take me back? Um, anyway, continuing the recap. Necro Butcher ran in for the save, but BJ Whitmer put his foot in a chair and stomped the chair, setting up Steen and Whitmer versus Dragon and Butcher. Main event saw Aries, Austin Aries, Roderick Strong, and Matt Seidel representing Ring of Honor, beating Ruckus, Necro Butcher, and Eddie King- Kingston when Matt Seidel pinned Kingston after a shooting star press. Necro had his leg in a cast to give the CZW partisan audience their out. John Zandig and Lobo and the Hate Club ran into the ring and chased the Ring of Honor wrestlers out and then yelled at Kingston for losing the match for CZW on their home turf. Zandig said that Ring of Honor had better watch out on its 100th show in Philadelphia. The idea for that show at the National Guard Armory, the usual Ring of Honor building in Philadelphia, is to have one side of the building reserved for Ring of Honor fans and one side for CZW fans. 
When this angle first started, Gabe Zapolsky told me that they were going to do it right and not have the more well-known company book it for ego so it draws money short-term and then it's over, although I don't think he expected the angle to end up as strong as it's turning out to be. That once out of the building for fans of each company has real potential. And this was this was the debut really of that the czw contingent in the roh crowd on this show and they really made an impact um it's interesting though because you mentioned uh the czw show which we did i did not rewatch for this i don't know if you did Um, but my memory watching it and i didn't watch all the czw shows but i did watch a few i think i had seen the prior years um cage of death also and i remember thinking watching it back on dvd that even though it was the same building the same day the ROH show had a more engaged crowd like throughout. I, I remember thinking that the CZW crowd was more quiet than I expected. Again, I wasn't there. Like it just, that's just how it came across on DVD to me, which it surprised me because like the CZW fans were so vocal during the ROH show. So I remember just thinking, Oh, like the CZW crowd is probably be really hot for this product. And it didn't really feel like the hot crowd that I would have expected watching it back. Again, I'm sure CZW fans who who were like into it back then would listen to this and get mad at me. But uh that was the impression it left on me that it was just sort of like a quieter, less engaged crowd reaction. Barbie also wonders if maybe some of those fans, you know, were just getting tired like, you yeah. know, you you went home because you couldn't handle the marathon. Maybe some of those fans were sitting there thinking who boy, maybe I like bit off more than I can chew and I shouldn't have bought bought tickets to two back-to-back wrestling shows cuz yeah, a little exhausted. And indie show, indie shows can be pretty long. Yeah, I mean that's that's the 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 wit the mixed bag of getting the second slot on a back to back double shot like this, right? On the one hand, typically you would think that the evening show is the better show for drawing, but if, if of, of all those fans that you're drawing that are going to actually double dip, you're getting fans that have already seen you know three or four hours of wrestling before your show even starts so yeah kind of have to take the good with the bad i will say this about czw though i think that they made the uh now the 2300 arena then the new alhambra arena previously the ecw arena they made it look better than roh did it was actually one of my big nitpicks for this show being there live like i remember thinking like oh this is really cool like seeing roh in this building like even though it didn't it wasn't mm-hmm. configured the same as it was for ecw like oh this is just really cool like a cool atmosphere here it's you know you really get the sense that this is that famous arena and when you watch it on dvd the way they light it it's just so dark you don't get any semblance of the uh the ambiance of the arena at all you know it's just it just looks like a dark uh roh building i don't know if you felt that way too like you watch you watch ecw shows even czw shows even like iwa shows in that building they've had a lot of indies at that building and part of the fun is seeing the crowd and you don't see the crowd at all um except for like the first maybe like row or two uh when you're watching this show from roh yeah you are we will get to that second because i was going to lead into some quotes i have and some you worked perfectly into that and a question i was going to have for you or two but like uh well, one other quote first, but no, I will just say right off the bat, you were not the only one that felt that way. Do you think it's also part of, I used to hear like Ring of Honor's philosophy when like Silken came in and they started turning down the lights and stuff was basically just, it was that theory of, it's almost like the indie version of the modern WWE theory, which is you make every building look the same. Like they, li- they light everything so dark in Ring of Honor that unless you go to like crowd brawling or stuff, or it's like a, a building that's really hard, it's. There's very little difference 
in in how show to show it looks in Ring of Honor. And yeah, you sometimes you might say, oh, if this building looks kind of unprofessional, that's an advantage of hide, being able to hide it. But if it's a building that has like real character or or is you know like legendary. You might actually want to see the details of that building. There's, I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody from ROH because, like, I don't know. I'd be very surprised if this was like a super intentional thing, like that we want to remove all the character from the ECW arena when we have a show there. Like, if I would just think like they just did the lighting the way they do it, and then that was just like an unfortunate consequence of that, that it just they sort of lost the charm of the building. Um, I'd be surprised if it was totally intentional, but maybe it was. I don't know. I mean, I haven't asked anybody about it. And next, we have that Austin Aries on the record quote to the PW Torch, which I was talking about before. And this is just a marvelously Austin Aries quote where, you know, it's a little bit prickly, kind of honest, kind of dickish, but it, it's good. Um, this is from the Torch. Austin Aries tells PW Torch that he thinks the angle between Ring of Honor and CZW will benefit both companies. Quote, the angle, it's good, he says. The fans were super hot for it, and it'll be good for the Philly market for sure. Regarding working at CZW, Aries never believed it would happen. No, I didn't think I'd ever be working for CZW, he says. They tried to bring me in right after my two out of three falls match with American Dragon, but we couldn't come to terms on pay. And in the end, I wasn't really happy with how they treated me during the negotiations. I should note that the person who handled that deal isn't with them anymore. Regarding his match in CZW last Saturday as part of the doubleheader with Ring of Honor at the former ECW arena, Aries enjoyed working the main event of the CZW card. Quote, this time around, everything was fine. Sands the little pieces of glass all over the ring and the floor and the floor during our match, he says. Hopefully they run with this angle for a while because it has legs and will benefit everyone in the end if it's done right, says Aries. So you, you made that sound like it was going to be much worse than it was. That okay. was a fairly diplomatic statement and not so bad. Uh, well, I, I do like the idea that he, he, he had the little dig. He managed to put the little dig in of, oh, they tried to come to me like a year ago, a couple of years ago, but they didn't offer enough money. Oh, that guy's fired now. Like, I, I love that he had to go to that little length. But yeah, it's not, on the list of things Austin Aries has said, pretty polite. You Maybe I did oversell it a bit in that finally. Another win for Matt Flores. <laughs> the score, the score is 8,032 to 7 right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I marked it on a little chunk. Moving on. My laptop. Any, <laughs> anyway, um, but no, I, I vaguely remember the main event. And I remember the main event, that being the real highlight of the CCW show. I remember really enjoying it. And really, it definitely felt like Aries in particular, particular but I believe that whole um, Ring of Honor team were really having fun being like dicks and getting to play kind of the assholes again and really stick it to the CCW fans. And we're just playing around with them. And like, it seemed like they were having a lot of fun, but and that brings us to the first quote, Matt, or the news story that will get me to ask you a question. But this may be an unex- unfair expectation on your memory, but we'll go to The Observer. Dave wrote, the fans on both the CZW and Ring of Honor sides are taking this feud very big, as it was described that the Ring of Honor fans were very arrogant in expressing that CZW was beneath Ring of Honor, and the CZW fans were there to have a good time but outshouted the ring of honor fans at their own show there were even racist remarks thrown around the ring of honor fans who left after the afternoon show were yelling derogatory remarks about czw to the people waiting in line to get that wasn't me that was not me (laughs) (laughs) if that's what you're gonna ask no i was not yelling racist things at the czw fans but i was gonna ask well i was gonna ask that as a joke so Again, another point for Matt. You, you very, Matt, I can't pull, you see those trains coming a mile away. But, um, 
Do you remember anything about the crowd? Because I will say this, watching it home all these years later, watching it, rewatching it on DVD, it felt like the crowd was kind of 50-50. There was a lot of chance that would start from one of the contingents of the crowd that would kind of get met, I would say, with an equal point. I wouldn't say I would agree necessarily watching at home with the sentiment expressed to Dave here that the CZW fans outshouted Ring of Honor at their own game. I guess you could say even if it's 50-50 at a Ring of Honor show, in a sense, that's kind of a win for CZW. And do you remember anything that was really off-putting? Because, I mean, it's pretty disappointing to hear, like, racist remarks or fans like yelling at ccw fans on the way out of the building like your show sucks i just well that, i mean a little i mean that, the the yelling your show sucks and stuff like that like that was super common and the the uh like they're not just on this show but like on the other roh ecw i mean czw shows and the wrestlers encouraged it like you know like mm. so like I, that wasn't unusual i don't remember the racist remarks but certainly i'm sure they happened like it just i mean you know, certainly a lot of homophobic stuff because there always is back and forth. Um, you know, that's that's like you know that was. I mean, you, we'll see it on the show later. We'll talk about it, but like though that stuff was unfortunately extremely common um, uh, on all of these shows. As far as the CZW fans like out yell out shouting um, ROH fans at their own show, um, I would say yes, that did happen because you said it was fifty fifty. It absolutely wasn't. It was way more ROH fans than CZW fans on on that this show. This the CZW fans were louder, so they outshouted them. Does that make sense? Like if it sounded fifty yeah. fifty, it's because they were did a better job of being vocal. Yeah, and, and I didn't mean like I came off wrong with the way I was saying it. So I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. I actually agree. Like I don't think it was fifty fifty CZW fans, but if you listen, I just was referring to yeah, the audible nature of it. It sounded fifty fifty, but uh, yeah, I completely believe you. That was more Ring of Honor fans than CZW fans. Obviously, you were there, but so again, that's that's a win for them. Um, next we'll go to Sean Radican. This is from his, uh, PW torch review. And this is going to get to your point, Matt, that you made earlier. We got a, a couple of quotes cause this was back when there was, there was that period when we were covering, I think mid 2004 ring of honor where Wade got really into ring of honor. And so the torch reviewed like every ring of honor show for a period of time, including like really like minor B shows. And then eventually there was that, that ep- we got to the point in the torch where there was one torch where Wade basically printed a whole page of letters saying you cover ring of honor too much stop it and then like the ring of honor like reviews almost immediately stop for the most part now like wade's interest is picking up again because i would say for all these first whole bunch of shows in, of this year in ring of honor like every single one gets a review in in the torch and it's one of those things that's kind of adorable about the torch which is like Dave Meltzer on The Observer, it's kind of like a machine. Like, things change in The Observer and what he covers, but it's almost like a, at a glacial pace. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Where The Torch was much more about Wade's whims, where it would be like, he would just decide all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm really excited about Ray Vaughn. We're going to cover it, like, super tons. And then it would just, the amount of coverage would, like, just turn off on a dime. Well, yeah, and- well, yeah, because... Dave always, as a rule, like had a section for everything: Indies, yeah. Japan, Mexico, sometimes even like Europe, MMA. Whereas Wade pretty much just covered the major televised American wrestling promotions, and so like covering ROH was sort of a novelty. Um, and it was it, it had to be based on just Wade himself being like, "Oh, this is I think this is cool." Like I don't think Wade paid any attention to independent wrestling at all, um, besides ROH during this time. Yeah. 
So we'll um, there's a couple, a few quotes we'll get to from the review, but because everyone like other than I think Bruce Mitchell on the team reviewed this show. But uh, first from Sean Radican, who was like the regular guy from the Torch, who was on the Ring of Honor beat, wrote columns, you know, covered a lot of shows, attended a lot of the shows. He had a quote from his review, which again goes back to what you're saying, Matt. He said, "If you purchased, if you purchase Hardcore Homecoming from 2005 at your local retail store, you will see how another independent promotion does a much better job of lighting the ECW arena and producing a pleasant pro wrestling event to watch." Ring of Honor put so much stock into running this event from Daniel's promo at the beginning of the release to the announcers putting over how special it was for Ring of Honor to be running the show in the arena, but the lighting was awful. I couldn't see the fans react to the matches or the wrestlers when they fought in the crowd, which had a negative impact on my enjoyment of the show. And so, first off, that's pretty much exactly what you said. So clearly you were not the only person that felt that way. Did you, did you, did you feel that way? Um... I didn't notice – I'll tell you what I did notice was anytime they fought into the crowd, which wasn't that often, but, like, even – like, I noticed this on the last show, too, which wasn't even ECW Arena. Like, Ring of Honor has always had a hard time in indies in general of, like, lighting the crowd when fight wrestling goes into them. But I noticed when we noticed on the – I noticed on the last show, the fourth anniversary show, where we both said, hey, we are noticing that new lighting rig. That seemed like when things went into the crowd, it was more pitch black than it's been in a while. And I feel like – Maybe this new lighting rig, they're just not equipped at lighting anything outside of the ring because I definitely noticed everything outside of the ring seemed darker. Well, there's another another thing too, though. ECW Arena, because it hosted so many wrestling shows and CW ran there, I feel like it might have come with its own lighting. Like, yeah. yeah, like I don't know if you watch the show. You know, usually when you win, you watch an ROH show, they bring these big lighting poles and they're in like four corners of the building. If you go back and watch this, you're going to see that it's not lit on the four corners the way it normally is. Like there's lights like on each side of the ring, like, and there's like a multiple lights. Like I think those are in-house lights. Um, and I, and I think it's a choice on how they lit it. Like, you know, again, I wasn't there. It's just, that's my recollection. I mean, I'm, you know, Shane Hagedorn would certainly know the answer to this. Um, but it felt like that it wasn't just ROH's typical lighting on this show. Like it's not like they br- ROH brought in their lights and then took them out, and then CZW brought in their lights. Yeah, I don't know if this is just Gabe like making something up to help advance the storyline, or if this is true. But there is a moment on commentary where he talks about how like, oh, we've been having so many fights backstage with CZW on everything from the lighting rig to the PA to everything. So, like, which one to use? So if that yeah. maybe that's true, if, you know that could very much be a case that maybe they ended up like acquiescing to CZW and was using equipment they weren't used to using. Yeah, because because then even on the same show, CZW's lighting looked better than ROH's <laughs> on that same day. Like I mean, they lit this building a billion times, and ROH didn't. This was their first time, so that that could be part of it too. I, I the one the one thing I I I just would be really surprised by if this was completely intentional, like to to make to kind of like make it so the entire uh, character of the building was blacked out. But I'm the sort of fan that like cares about the look of a building and the Mm -hmm. character of it. And, you know, part of that's part of why I like watching older wrestling is that they didn't homogenize the looks the way they do now in pretty much all the major TV promotions. You know, you watch a show from WWF show from MSG and then you watch a show from the Philly spectrum and you watch a show from Boston garden. And it's like, they all look like unique buildings. And really, the only one that looks even slightly unique now is MSG because of that ceiling. But then they color the ceiling too, like with, with lighting <laughs> and stuff. So it's 
but, but but back then you really could tell the difference, and I I find that fun personally. I think it it, like, it makes the shows seem more fun. I'm on the record, I believe, when 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 Ring of Arm made the changeover early on from the like a year or whenever in from like having every building just using house lighting to turning down the house lights and having their own lighting rigs. Like I kind of missed just like. Even though some of those buildings look very w- what they are, which aren't big buildings, and you know, like I like, I like the individual character of of every building, you know. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a balance. Like, like you know, you can still light and get the character of a building. Like when you saw the ROH shows at the New Yorker Hotel, that didn't yeah. look like every other building. They still had lighting, you know. Still, they weren't using yeah. the house lights, but they looked. It looked different. You can see the background. Same thing when they start running the Manhattan Center. Like you can see it. It looks different. It's not. It doesn't look the same. So you can have a balance of having lighting, but also not making the entire building look like pitch black and like a void of nothingness. The way some of these shows look. The way my soul is. But mm-hmm. Matt, that's what I was I getting demand, at. I want to see the true character of Basketball City. But <laughs> um, we have. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the, the new the new basketball city is very nice. The old one, maybe not so much. I would love a promo like the one we're going to get to, where Christopher Daniels like um you know drives to the ECW. I would love one where he like just marches up the stairs of basketball city while like talking like reserved tones about how important basketball city is. Like this, so, is it's, a, it's a whole it's a whole city of basketball. <laughs> this is where the Knicks sharpen their blades, you know. Like, but um, we have one last quote from one of the torch reviews that we'll use now and then we'll finally get to the show but i think this also adds uh brings us to another kind of interesting topic so this is from pat mcneil's review for the torch of the show he wrote it's ironic but the biggest problem with arena warfare is the arena here is ring of honor the biggest baddest super indie of them all and they're in the former ecw arena the home of combat zone jersey all pro xpw chikara 3pw pwu and doubtless a few other independent promotions that i've blocked out of my memory by running a show in the most recognizable indie wrestling building of them all ring of honor has deliberately lumped themselves in with these other promotions being in this building makes them look, well, kind of Bush League. It also makes Ring of Honor look Bush League when the production values for this disc aren't up to par with the well-produced hardcore homecoming video releases from 2005. A big push from the torch for hardcore homecoming. But uh, Matt, you know, again, he's echoing the production thoughts, which I think we'll, we agree with. But, but every, everything, I, everything else he said is stupid. Yeah, I'm good. If, if, you're, yeah, if that's what you're getting at, yes, of course, it's extremely stupid. Yeah, like um, – <laughs> The idea that one Ring of Honor, like, first off, that predisposes that, like, Ring of Honor is normally running very classy buildings that other independent wrestling companies would not ever run. Like, like, I don't know. The National Guard Armory in Philadelphia, like, like, is that a step above the ECW? Like, the Inman, like, if you've been to the Inman Sports Center, not that it's like such a horrible place or anything, but like, yeah, I'm sure they could run other independent wrestling shows there. Sport, the, 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 their biggest venue for like the year before was the uh, Murphy Rexplex, which was this giant like monolithic like multi venue sports center where you could hear like concerts going on in the background as they were wrestling. Like the idea that this was somehow going to cheapen Ring of Honor's image when this is like the only building that we're going to other than the New Yorker, yeah, you know, you, that actually had some history and like wrestling cachet. You transpose the names of two different places because you said the Murphy Rexplex. Oh God. Yeah. The, the, that's just the Rexplex. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that would be a dream. Business. Yeah, it would be. A, every <laughs> ROH fan's biggest dream is to enter into the Murphy Rexplex. You know, that's, I think, where ROH fans go when they die. 
<laughs> Murphy Rex Plex, of course, named after the great 40s Western actor Murphy Rex. But um, <laughs> that person doesn't exist. <laughs> I was about to look it up because I would have said, man, that's quick thinking on your feet. <laughs> but I guess for a second we should just talk about the ECW ring because that's the last thing I wanted to ask you before we get to the show, which is like – ECW Arena is kind of a testament to the idea of if you run enough cool things in a show, anything becomes legendary because I've never obviously been to the ECW Arena in any of its forms. But for everything I heard, like the original ECW Arena was a complete shithole. And well, I think you're probably thinking of the same um, post on the Delphi message boards that I am when you hear that. There was a guy named Soups who posted on the Delphi message boards back when we posted on it. It must must have been like 1999. And this, this poster, hi, if you're listening, he went to the ECW arena, I think once in 1999, and he was like, the ECW arena is a complete shithole. He criticized the bathrooms. He criticized like the like how rickety it was. And he really left a very negative impression to those of us who hadn't been there before. Um, were you thinking of that post? And do you remember that post, Trevor? I honestly don't. I just used that same phrase as a coincidence. So, uh, well, I want to talk a bit more about the arena in general. But first, my first question to you is, obviously, this was one of the many rebrands of the new, new ECW arena. So I'm going to ask you, were you ever at the ECW arena during, like, its original run? And uh. how... Was how cleaned up or gussied up, if at all, was the new Alhambra arena, this this rebranded version? Well, you're going to embarrass me. No, I had never been to the ECW arena during its original run. Never saw ECW live there. Um, so I don't know. But this, to me, felt like, you know, it wasn't a super beautiful place, but it was an indie wrestling venue. You know what I mean? Like, it was, yeah. you know, it was fine. <laughs> it didn't didn't strike me as particularly nice or particularly not nice. Um, that That's what I would say um, when I was there. I thought it was really cool, though. Like, I thought I was really excited to be there and see ROH there. That's part of why I was so disappointed when I saw the lighting and how it came off on video, because I thought it seemed like the vibe was really cool in the building. Because I, I, I think, like, the ECW Arena, like, I, I think, and I, I'm not I'm, well, I'm about to say something, and I want to preempt it by saying, I'm not saying wrestling promotions should not try and book the best, most comfortable buildings for their fans. I'm not saying they shouldn't try and put their fans' comfort at a premium. I'm not saying that wrestling fans should view watching shitty wrestling in a shitty building as a badge of honor or anything like that or making you better. But a, there ba- is, badge, a badge of ring of honor. <laughs> but there is, I think, a charm to seeing something really great in a really shitty venue. Like there's, there's something about it that makes the goodness of it seem even better. This idea that like, I really had to fight to see this. And like, you had to really dig to see this. It's almost like, how, again, another place I've never been to like the old famous punk rock club, CBGBs. Like the people say that place is actually like a horrid, foul, piss smelling little shithole. But again, um, you know, it's a legendary venue because there was a lot of great bands that like broke out there. And yeah, I would have, you know, it's like, I guess the modern version would have been, you know, the hot place in Reseda that PWG ran, which again, by any, not visually impressive, too small for the fan base that they were drawing. So the fans were packed like sardines, but eventually there just becomes this charm of you're seeing something that's a world-class product in this, like, in the case of the original ECW arena, like a shitty bingo hall. Well, this is just like the classic hipster thing, right? You're, you're, you're at a venue or in a place that's not 
necessarily accessible or not necessarily appealing to the mainstream person who or the masses that might want to see it, you're involved in something that's a little bit underground, a little bit seedy, a little bit dirty, but it, that makes it more special and makes you much cooler for having been a part of it. Like everybody who was able to go to the ECW arena can wear that as a badge of honor. You know, during the ECW days, I mean, because it's it's this cool kind of exclusive thing. When it's not part of it is it's not so big. You can't get a ticket so easily. You know, to receive a PWG shows the way you can for more you know modern PWG shows in the in the new venue. When when something is harder, it's more exclusive. It's a little bit grimier. It's a little bit edgier. I think it's just natural for somebody to wear that as a badge of honor. So yeah, if you were at CBGB's in 1976, yeah, good for you. That's really fucking awesome. And yeah. it's the same thing if you went to see ECW live in 1995. And I totally get that. I mean, it's, it's you know, even it's kind of a douchey thing. Like there is part of the fun, like it's one of the small perks of being an indie wrestling fan is that feeling of, elitism you know the idea of like like you matt you hell yeah to be like all these people can say oh we love brian danielson we love cm punk and yeah it's easy to discover them when they're on wwtv on front of an audience of millions on national tv and you go buy a ticket to see them in a sixteen thousand seat building but you can say you know i saw them when only thousands of people knew about them i saw them in little crappy 500 seat venues you know i, t- like I, t- I told you i'm putting i'm putting I attended Joe versus Kobashi on my tombstone. <laughs> exactly. Like there is, there is definitely a, like, I knew it. I knew this was great before you did. You know, I, I did it. I went and saw these guys before it was easy. I, I paid the price, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe that's not always a great impulse for us to have as human beings, but I also can't deny that. Like I have definitely felt that at times in my life as an indie wrestling fan. I mean, it's I part of part of why you want to go to see stuff live, is so you could say you were a part of it. Like that's not yeah. it's not unique to indie wrestling fans. Yeah. Again, yeah, it's the same thing as like catching that little like saying you know people say, oh, I saw Nirvana, you know, in front of uh, two hundred fifty people, you know, before they you know signed to, to Sub Pop or whatever, you know, some things like that. Just that yeah, I was there before it hit. That's yeah. one of the. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like if I have any cool ones other than wrestling. I guess the one is like one of my favorite bands like of recent the recent years like the past decade is Titus Andronicus. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and I do. like I was at the release show for their famous album The Monitor in 2010. Like so it's like I could say oh like that's a cool thing that I could say that I was at. You know, like I don't mm-hmm. have a lot of it. Most of it's wrestling, but when I do get it, yeah, I don't I don't feel ashamed of saying that I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. I, th- I think the one thing, and I guess we should get to the show after this because I didn't expect to have so much to talk about before the show, but I will say, I think the one thing is, it's not necessarily the worst thing to have a bit of like happiness and pride that you like discovered something before other people, but I think maybe where it gets worse and the thing people shouldn't, uh, definitely shouldn't do is kind of the gatekeeping of like, well, you know, who, who, who doesn't hate like when someone goes up to someone that's wearing a t-shirt of a band going, Oh, do you even know their albums? That's the same thing with wrestling. Like, you know, I would have never gone up to somebody and been like, Oh, you like CM Punk when he was in WWE. I bet you don't know. I bet you've never seen him in IWA mid South working a 93 minute match. Like that kind of gatekeeping, I think is more gross. I would say. Yeah, gross, but really cool. No, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, I, I, to, I totally agree with you. That yeah, don't be an asshole about stuff. Yeah. I think it's fine to be like, yeah, I was at that. That's really awesome. But exactly. not like if you weren't at it, then you don't know. Like I'm sure there are people that know more about a lot of this stuff than I do that weren't at these 
events. Like, so it's a big deal. Like, I, I, I think that's totally true. You should not be a, um, an elitist about things. Yeah. Be proud of what you got to experience, but don't use it to harsh on other, be harp on other people. But finally, we open this show with how we end arena warfare with how we ended the last show from our TUB to be continued with Christopher Daniels outside the Murphy rec center, not the Murphy Rex center. No, to do uh, no, to, to be, yes, to clarify the Murphy rec center where ROH started Murphy Rex plex, the afterlife that ROH fans go to when they die. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Daniels talks about four years ago. He was here working for an unknown promotion, but by the end of the night, everyone knew that the era of honor had begun Daniel says, Ring of Honor put on some of the best wrestling sh- shows ever in this building, and he had some of his toughest matches here, including a 60-minute Ironman match for the Ring of Honor title. Daniel says, no matter where they did, th- what, what they did there, though, they always heard this one voice asking them the same question. And then at this point, the camera follows Daniels as he gets into a van. The van begins to drive away. He says, he says it's five blocks away, but it definitely was longer. <laughs> um, Daniels tells us that the question was, when were they going to travel five blocks away, which, as Matt just said, this seemed longer than five blocks, and run the ECW arena? When would Ring of Honor make its mark in those, in that, those hallowed halls? Daniel says the ECW arena may now have a different name and a different look, but it's the same building where the revolution was born. It's still the most important building in the industry's underground. Daniels goes through ECW's history to extend a promo that does not have a set end time as the cars to stop multiple <laughs> times due to traffic. <laughs> you just, if you ever want to see a guy just have to vamp yeah. and stretch, this is the promo for you. I think it goes on like almost five minutes. Yeah, almost five minutes. He, ha- I did you notice that he had like a sheet of paper in his lap that he? Would count- no, I did not. Yeah, yeah. He was looking. He was looking at. I guess for extra stuff to say to keep it going. He, like it's very funny to hear Christopher Daniels be like. Oh yeah, um, like you because you know you could just hear Gabe's voice, like where he's like, "Yeah, uh, Tommy Dreamer, he pinned Raven. I remember that." And uh, you know, like stuff like like just doesn't didn't seem natural at all. It's it's very funny to me. You you just could start to see beads of sweat form on Daniel's head, like, "Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, Webster's Dictionary defines hardcore as like just just desperately trying to keep it going." Who could Not remember? Like, it'd be, it'd be funny if he just got up to like, "Who could remember the." Debut of Chris Chetty. Like, you just, like, <laughs> just like, remember when Easy Money made his appearance at the ECW arena? Chilly Willy, that's a fun name. Remember that guy? Like, just, um, there's just like a record setting, like, tr- there's been a car accident. He's just stuck there for like 25 minutes. Can't go. <laughs> um, so, uh, Anyway, um, he, Daniels talks about how no one ever filled the shoes of ECW, but now, four years since opening their doors, Ray Vonner stepping up to the plate. And then, uh, echoing what we just said, Matt, I wrote my notes. As neat as the idea behind this promo is, it's bordering on being too long just to justify the drive. But right around the five-minute mark, they arrive at the new Alhambra Arena. A line outside it we can see for tonight's show. Daniels gets out and ends his promo, saying it means something to him and everyone on the Ring of Honor roster to wrestle here. So again, yeah, I, I would echo what past Trevor wrote in the notes, which is just, I think that's a really neat idea of having Daniels start outside the Murphy Rec Center where Ring of Honor started and then do a drive where we get no camera cuts, you know, with the cameras just following him literally into the car and with him in the car as he cuts his promo. But... Yeah, the, the, he was not ready to cut, like, a five-minute promo about the history of the ECW arena. It would have been fun if he had just done, like, put a GoPro on his head and, like, ridden his bike over there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that bike with the, maybe that bike with the basket that Sal Renaro had? 
<laughs> the one that Loki apparently rode backstage. But yeah, yes. this is a. It's, it's it's an interesting and memorable promo, to be sure. Yes. But that brings us to the actual opening match that we got to see at the show. The Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Number One Contendership Scramble. The Rottweilers of Homicide and Ricky Reyes, with Grim Reefer and Julius Smokes in their corner, defeated Jason Blade and Kim Mikazi, the Briscoes of Jay and Mark, and the Ring Crew Express of Dun and Marcos in the weather. They're now, at this point, only appearing once in a while in Ring of Honor. They, um, the Rottweilers won in 11.55, when Homicide pinned to Marcos after hitting the cop killer. Matt, you know, a somewhat star-studded tag team scramble. You got Homicide and you got the Briscoes. What'd you think about it? Half star-studded, I would say. Um, yeah. But, you know, Dunn and Marcos, they're stars to us. Star-sprinkled. Yeah. Marcos had his hair kind of like reddish dyed. That's a, a nice look. But yeah, I mean, it's... There's the... When there's star power in the ring, the match does seem more intense. When the Briscoes are fighting with Homicide and the Rottweilers, it feels like a different match than when the Ring Crew Express are wrestling um, Blade and Mikazi, who they had wrestled now twice on different ROH shows. But I would say the stuff between the Ring Crew Express and Blade and Mikazi is pretty fast-paced. It's pretty good. Um, when Jay gets in, he's moving really quick. I don't think that the Briscoes look quite as dominant as they did in their debut. I think they sort of toned it back a little bit. Um, for one thing, they're wearing kind of their, the tights, the kind of stuff that they wore before they left. Um, especially Mark. He's wearing that singlet. Jay's more just wearing trunks. Um, they don't stick with that for long. They go back to the uh, the shorts pretty quick after this. But... Um, you know, they have some, some fun sequences. They do their, their dive train. Ring Crew Express do a, uh, a stage dive. Everybody keeps cutting off, um, Mark going for a shooting star press and doing another dive, like Blade hitting a top rope moonsault until Mark finally does a shooting star press and gets an overhead belly to belly on Ricky Reyes. Um, they go through more stuff, um, Marcos does, goes for a spinning head scissors onto Blade and does this Really cool reversal into a double knees by Mikazi, Blade does. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I thought that actually Blade and Mikazi and Ring Crew Express looked better than I would have expected here. Um, and the match ended up being pretty fun. The Briscoes uh, hit the Doomsday, uh, devised a springboard Doomsday on Dunn. Homicide broke that up. Um, meanwhile, um, Reyes gets the choke on Jay, and Mark eventually breaks that up. Reyes hits a top rope powerbomb on Mark. Jay breaks that up. Jay goes for the the Jay Driller on Homicide. Reyes stops that. Then Jay goes for it on Reyes. Homicide clotheslines him pretty hard to break that up. Then Marcos comes in, and Homicide hits just a cop kill out of the blue and gets the win. Um, There was some not-so-smoothness in this match, as there often is in these these four-corner matches. Um, But I... um, I did enjoy it. I thought it was more entertaining than I remembered because I thought this was a pretty forgettable match at the time, and I, I thought I had a good time watching it. Briscoes didn't feel as special here as they did uh, in their return match, but what I liked about it, I guess, is that it was sort of like a fun throwback because when was the last time ROH did a, a, four-corner, a four-corner tag team scramble match? I really can't think of it. It's been a while, though, and I think they actually hyped it up that way. Like, we're, we're bringing back the tag team scramble. So in that respect, I liked it. It wasn't particularly good, but I think it was kind of a fun throwback old-school opener. Yeah, I, I thought it was your typical solid, like, 
scramble. That's like a kind of an above average, but not particularly amazing match. But it was like you said, like we basically at this point, man, we've reviewed so many scrambles. We there, there's almost like a template to review a scramble, which is basically to say it was like fast paced, all action, sloppy, you know, maybe a blown spot here or there. It was know. it was very representative of what the scrambles used to be when they had them often. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would agree that. Well, I don't know if you said this with the match highlight, but I would, I would definitely say that that Mark Briscoe spot where everyone keeps cutting him off for a dive so they can do their dive to the floor, and then Mark finally hits his. That was a kind of cute. I thought that was kind of like the highlight of the match. You know, there's not any real much of a story here, which not do you normally expect that in a scramble, but that's the kind of thing that sometimes. It's an extra element that can elevate a scramble to be a little more memorable. There, there is some acknowledgement that the Rottweilers were the group that in kayfabe terms injured the Briscoes and took them out of Ring of Honor for that over that, that year plus stretch. You'd think but there'd be, you think there'd be more intensity if that was what they were going to be going for though. I was going to say exactly like they do have some exchanges, but they're not much spicier than any typical encounter you'd see between two teams in a scramble. Like maybe. 10% more, you know, a little more jaw jacking. We'll see a bit more of that after the match, but like, it's not that even though the, the announcing is telling us about that story, it, it's not that evident in the match. And obviously I would imagine this scramble is probably also there to uh, help protect homicide because he's still recovering from a bit bad shoulder injury. He doesn't have to do too much here until the end. It's, it's um, been a while since we've seen the cop kill in my recollection. Am I right yeah, about I that? Know, yeah. Isn't that like, I wonder if homicide just wanted to do that. Because it was ECW Arena. I don't know if this was his first time working at ECW Arena, but like I was shocked by that too because at this point the cop killer was kind of a thing that Homicide wouldn't bring out that often and he outright hits it here in an opening match scramble on Marcos. Like Maybe it was part like, of the whole throwback vibe of the match. Like we're going back to two thousand and three in every way. Yeah. Um on Gabe, you know, Gabe is not doing commentary on this night. This is your classic team of Lenny Leonard and Dave Prezak, but Gabe will get on a few times on the, on the mic tonight. And he does one where he just gets, on, he just does a whole bunch of like house clean quickly to establish various, various story things. So he gets on commentary and he says, you know, this is an afternoon show. It's part of a doubleheader with CZW. And I love that, you know, this is one of those great attentions to detail that ring of honor could have where Gabe goes the extra mile to justify this. He goes ring of honor agreed to run this double shot with CZW before our relationship with CZW took a turn. So I love that Gabe even goes that far to be like, the only reason we're running this double shot is, you know, because we agreed to it before we realized CZW was assholes, basically. Um, Gabe then says, Chris Hero doesn't even have the guts to be here. He's down in Mexico, which he, in fact, Chris Hero is not on this show. Uh, Gabe gives a warning that if any CZW wrestler, especially Necro Butcher, wants to fight, Ring of Honor is ready to defend themselves. And then, as I referenced earlier, Gabe then says, he says, there's been one argument after another with CZW about the show, the show, including things about what ring to use, what light you, what lights to use, and what PA system to use. So, Maybe that was real, and maybe that explains some of the production stuff. Maybe it isn't. Who knows? But after the match, the Rottweilers yell at the Briscoes for a while before eventually making their way to the back. Julie Smoke screams into the camera that Colt Cabana's going to die. As they go to the curtain, BJ Whitmer comes out, walks by them, and he makes his way to the ring. He grabs the mic and gets showered with a huge Necro's Gonna Kill You chant, followed by a Shut the Fuck Up chant. And then as he begins his promo, a BJ Whitmer chant... 
Uh, Whitmer recaps how he had a chance to get revenge on Christopher Daniels in a match at the previous Ring of Honor show, but it was ruined by some wrestlers from CZW. We get CZW chants, followed by Ring of Honor fans trying to time sucks after every CZW. As BJ runs down CZW and tells Necro Butcher to get his fucking ass out here right now. Huge chant for Necro, who doesn't show up. Whitmer demands Necro shows. Necro still doesn't show up, prompting Whitmer to say that's just what he expected from CZW. Um, crowd was super hot for this match. I thought this was our first real taste so of what the Ring of Honor CZW crowd would be like. Like any CZW Ring of Honor like split crowd would be like that. That real super hot energy where it's two sides that are legit split fighting against each other, kind of for the battle of the of the air, I would say. And uh, I would also say Whitmer was passionate. I wouldn't call this an amazing piece of mic work, but in some ways, I would say this is like the best promo he's cut so far that we've seen on through the years, just in terms of being like just emotional and just getting you to kind of feel something. I would say, you know, he, he sells well being angry and being like ornery and wanting to fight these guys. Yeah. Wimmer definitely stepped up throughout this feud. Um, the one thing I will say though, is didn't this segment keep, um, seem kind of unnecessary in the sense of they just bring him back, like literally after the very next match and they could have just done it all in one segment. Like did, was it super necessary to have one part where Necro didn't come out? Okay. No one says this, but this is my guess. Um, this was to stall because of uh, Samoa Joe. Because Samoa Joe, I, I think I read somewhere else, there's a note somewhere else where they said there's a lot of stalling on this show. There definitely is a lot of stalling in one match in particular, which we'll, I, we'll get to. Because but. Samoa Joe obviously does not get to the show till very late in the show to the point where they have to change a match because of it. So, yeah, because, yeah, if you look on this in the surface, the story makes no sense. Like, BJ Whitmer calls out Necro Butcher and Necro doesn't show up, but the payoff is Necro just shows up later. Like, like yeah, a few minutes later, really. There, there's no reason for Necro to not show up here unless you simply just want to add a segment to try and buy a few more minutes, which I guess is the, that's what this segment does. But still, I thought it was enjoyable enough because of the crowd interaction. Matt, hot news. The new five, the new top five rankings have dropped, Matt. Check it out. Number five, Samoa Joe. Number four, Alex Shelley. Number three, Christopher Daniels. Number two, Jimmy Yang. And number one, Roderick Strong. So, so Jimmy Yang, didn't he just win like one four-way against a bunch of like not super highly ranked guys? He might have won another match. I'm not – didn't he – did he beat uh, Jay Lethal? Um, I think he beat uh, Jay Lethal on uh, the recent show. Oh, on the, uh, on the Dissension show? Was that it? I think so, because wasn't Jay Lethal ranked, like, number two or something? I guess that makes sense. So they basically um, just gave him Lethal spot for beating Lethal. It's interesting, um, though, because, you know, Shelly is the number four ranked, and he's the guy who gets the shot. Obviously, yeah. Strong gets a shot. Daniels, as we mentioned, doesn't get a shot at all during the Danielson title reign. Yang does get a shot. He does. And Joe gets a shot many months later. And so that brings us to the second match on the show, where we get the number two rank versus the number one rank. Roderick Strong defeats Jimmy Yang via submission in 12 minutes, 52 seconds, when he made him tap out to, I guess, technically it's a Boston Crab, because isn't the stronghold only when he puts the knee in the back? Uh, sure. Yeah, is- I guess so. I, you know, I mean, I've definitely, there. I've heard shows where they do call it the stronghold yeah. when it's not when he doesn't do that. But I think, at least at this point, the knee in the back, like Lion Tamer type of deal, is the real stronghold. Yeah, so either way, whatever, it's, it's, it's a regular Boston Crab, whatever you want to call it, you know, dealer's choice, listener. But, um, Ring of Honor Jimmy Yang, Matt, continues to mystify me. I don't know why his matches feel so cold and lifeless to me. Like, I can point out specific flaws in them, but they don't ex- add up to explain just the sheer level of detachment I feel watching his matches. Like, this match, 
in a lot of ways, it's fine. I'd call it like low good, like a three-star match. It's back and forth. There's a good level of action. There's two or three really cool spots. There's a nice finish. I think it's actually a little bit better, in my opinion, than their match at Enter the Dragon. Yet, watch it. I feel like I'm seeing a better match than I'm feeling, if you know, if that makes sense. Like, I can under, like, my eyes are seeing a match, and, but emotionally, I'm not feeling a match that's even that good. And I don't know what Jimmy Yang is doing so wrong to get me to feel this way in so many matches, yet I can tell you I felt it in a lot of them. I would say uh, Strashley takes more of the match than Yang, and unlike some of his longer matches where he holds back on the backbreakers and the chops till like late in the match, he kind of sprinkles them throughout the match here. Both guys hit fantastic looking flat of the foot spots. Like Jimmy Yang does this drop kick where one foot hits Roderick in the flat the flat of the foot right in his face, and then later after Roderick hits that fantastic sick kick on the last show to AJ Styles, he hits another one like on that level to Yang here. Um, you know, that, and then they go to the finish and the finish is good too. Like, um, Yang goes for a top rope Rana and as he jumps in the air to do the Rana on the way in mid jump, strong grabs his leg and just ends up hooking Yang's legs under his own armpits. And then he just drops down off the turnbuckles into a Boston crab really fluidly. And it's just a quick fluid way to quickly get a win out of nowhere. I really like that counter. Uh, I think Wade Keller in his review of this match, he was a little harsh, but in a way he kind of summed up how I feel about Jimmy Yang, but he ended up applying it to Roderick Strong too. This is Wade's review of this match. He wrote a snoozer too nonchalant throughout. They needed some coffee or something before this match to get out of first gear. There was no sense of urgency, just a casualness that's inconsistent with trying to portray you're in a fight. Disappointing. Neither guy wrestled like someone you'd pay to see in a main event. Again, I think that's a little harsh, but in a way, I think Wade stumbled on how I would describe Jimmy Yang and Ring of Honor, which is casualness. If there was a word I would describe Jimmy Yang, it's not bad. It just he feels very casual. Yeah, I mean, when when you mention like I can't put my finger on what it is, like I think I can, at least for this match, I can put my finger on it. I do agree with what Ga- what uh, Wade said. It's it was very lethargic. Um, it wasn't didn't have a sense of urgency. I do think that their first match was better. I think this match was like if you say this match was low good, I would say that's only true in the sense of like they were professional and executed their moves fairly well most of the time. But yeah, they they didn't seem like there was much urgency. They didn't seem like they were trying that hard. And like you know, I mean, I think they're good wrestlers. I think this is a much this is a very below average performance for Strong during this time period. I think that Strong. And Yang both hit those great kicks like you mentioned, but there's like a lot of the rest of the match was below par for honestly both of them. Not that I've been like loving the Jimmy Yang stuff from ROH, but I think this was worse than usual for him too. It just they had an off day and they just I guess they just didn't feel it. Uh, you know, the, the idea that they could have used some caffeine or some energy before the match, that kind of rings true to me. Um, you know, there were even some miscommunication spots. There was a, like, there was some miscommunication after a leapfrog, so Strong just, like, hits him in the back, leading to a strike. There was also another spot, and I always enjoy this, um, when the announcer kind of oversells something to cover for something that wasn't that good. There was a spot where Yang does a comeback with, like, clotheslines and then a backdrop, and Leonard says, nice elevation, but really it was, like, way below average elevation for a backdrop. <laughs> um but you know, and it's it's kind of disappointing because 
at the beginning of the match, the crowd was totally ready to be into this. You know, other than the CCW yeah. heckler fans, like they were doing the dueling chants and stuff. And by the end of the match, they were just kind of bored because this like was a very disappointing match. Like, I don't want to castigate the wrestlers because again, everybody can have an off night, but I would definitely describe this as an off night for honestly both of these guys. I mean, and, and you know, Str- Strong I know does end up being part of a very good match later in the night on the CZW show. So this was just, I guess, an off moment for him. Maybe just him and Yang don't click. Well, this is also, I think, the first example of, and we'll see this multiple times in the night, but like of a wrestler getting distracted by hecklers in the crowd where, you know, some wrestlers, they make it part of the show and they make it fun. But you see Roderick Strong, there's a few times in in the match where he's like jawing with some fan that's heckling with him in the crowd. And there's one point in this match where he literally like just stops the match for like five to ten seconds just to look for where like he's hearing this heckler coming from. Like, he just stops what he's doing and, like, walks to the ring, like, ropes and is just, like, looking for the heckler, even though he doesn't do anything, but he's just like, where the fuck is this guy? And, you know, it, it just seemed like he was not, he was a little bit rattled. Maybe, like, some wrestlers, maybe on this, I would be shocked if they were a little, if they weren't a little surprised that, oh, like, there's a segment of this crowd that's going to be kind of on my shit, possibly. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the thing about, yeah, it's just, mechanically like he's, he it's not like he's not doing anything that's exciting in terms of high spots but there's just so many things like i'm already so tired i'm going to hate that big spinning back kick he does it's cool the first few times you see it and then he uses it so much it's so often his big transition move to get back on offense the more you see it the less precise you realize it is it, it's just it's kind of overused he always kind of throws it in the same places and even just like when yang does um mid-match submission sometimes you know a lot of times a wrestler will use a mid-match submission to catch his breath and like call the next couple spots or whatever and that's normal and and natural but i think the art of wrestling is you kind of hide that where when i see yang do it in a lot of these matches it's very nakedly like what he's doing like he's putting no emotion or effort into it he's just kind of like gonna grab a headlock gonna grab a hold we're just gonna sit here for a second we're gonna think about what to do next and it, it there's just he there's no real emotion. He doesn't really go to the extra mile to color anything in. But, like, well, the moves itself, he's doing moves. I mean, well, like we that's said, my review. He's doing moves. Well, like we said, like, he's a very talented wrestler. Sometimes a uh, style and a promotion just isn't a good fit for a certain wrestler. And it's pretty clear that ROH and Jimmy Yang were just not a great fit. And uh, only other note is on commentary, Prezak at one point during commentary, he says – uh Ring of Honor didn't need to book a cage of death or the or, or no, he goes a cage of dorks or the best of the rest tournament to draw a crowd here, which I thought was kind of funny considering that like the the real story behind the CZW Ring of Honor feud is how it basically saved Ring of Honor in the Philadelphia market. So the idea of like Ring of Honor didn't need to book any special show to like draw a crowd in Philly, it's like, well, you kind of needed to feud with CZW, the company you're calling down to draw a crowd in Philly. But it would be it would be pretty funny if he said that in a kayfabe promo, though. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we go backstage and we join Colt Cabana, who Matt Colt Cabana has reached a new beard level. We have moved beyond stubble, people. Um, Colt talks about tonight at the ECW arena. Colt says he's in a three way dance, a match ECW made famous. He tells us that through. Though the match he – no, Colt says tonight, though, the real match he wants 
is against Homicide. Colt wants the cameraman to follow him as he challenges Homicide to fight him after the show. Anywhere in this arena, anywhere in this state, anywhere in this area. I love that he goes from arena to state, then just to general area, which I guess that's a larger... I guess it includes, like, Delaware, too. So, (laughs) fighting Delaware. He asks if Homicide has the balls to fight him here. And it's interesting that they kind of build to this... with the, a segment later too of the idea of homicide and Cole are going to fight after the show. And I, I assume they just, maybe they meant to interrupt it with the CCW feud because it never actually happens. Like if that was always the plan, Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it was a way to kind of explain why there were cameras outside. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I don't think you really needed that explanation. I think it just would make sense for people, the camera people to follow the fight outside, but uh, that's what it seems like they were going for. We are next cut to Alex Shelley and Prince Nana backstage. Shelley says, you always remember your first times, your first day in school, the first day you ever had sex. Shelley says he remembers the first shot Generation Next had in Ring of Honor where they said that they were going to come for the top spots. Shelley says that hasn't changed and Brian Danielson has the top spot now. He says Gordon Soley is right that there are five points of balance in the human body, but one of them is more important than the rest. There are two arms. There are two legs, but it's the neck that's the most important. He says Spanky taught him to slice bread thanks to some Skrilla they paid for him. He uses the word Skrilla. And he says the slice bread isn't Brian's weakness, but taking out the neck is. Shelley says after he wins the Ring of Honor title tonight, there will be mandatory shots of vitamin A for everyone. At this point, Gabe says, cut, cut. We go to, go to the ring, go to the ring, which we do. We go back to the ring where DJ Whitmer interrupts Bobby Cruz, who was plugging the next Philadelphia event for Ring of Honor. Whitmer says he's sick and tired of sitting in the back with his dick in his hand. A tribute, a tribute, a tribute to James Gibson, that line. It was, yeah. <laughs> he again challenges Necro Butcher to come out now, and he calls him a fucking pussy. The crowd chants, fuck him up, BJ, fuck him up. Finally, Necro does come out, taking off his shoes and running into a ringside brawl with BJ as the crowd cheers for each guy. At times so split, I couldn't even really make out at times the specific names. It just kind of blurs into one, you know, sound. BJ and Necro fight back and forth on the ring apron. BJ eventually knocks Necro off of the ring apron with a big running knee, sending him into the guardrail. Whitmer celebrates in the ring when he is sneak attacked by Super Dragon, making his Ring of Honor main card debut. He was on a pre-show do or die match once years earlier dragon curb stomps bj and a fan throws a roll of toilet paper into the ring bj quickly recovers in the two brawl as we get another round of very loud dueling chants the two brawl in and out of the ring and whitmer's about to explode her super dragon when a recovered necro attacks whitmer dragon then hit, hits whitmer with a top rope double stomp and the two beat down bj until a bunch of wrestlers and students from the ring of honor locker room run in and chase them to ringside the crowd chants largely for ring of honor at this point necro hits himself hard in the head with a chair repeatedly as he is wont to do the crowd chants for necro at this display of self torture then back again for ring of honor then for czw again crowds going back and forth the crowd's just red hot they're warring with each other which just makes both sides want to be even louder eventually whitmer gets back to his feet he gets on the mic and he tells necro and dragon that this is far from fucking over necro i mean bj loving the f-bomb on this show this was super hot matt i think it was one of those rare moments in modern wrestling where you had like a legit split crowd and i think that's kind of really the story of the night which is there's just something electric about a crowd that is legitimately like fighting within itself and not just dueling chants for both guys because they just think it's fun to do dueling chants. 
yeah, like I said, the ROH fans definitely outnumbered the CZW fans, but the passion of the CZW fans made them sound their ROHs equal, which was great. And yeah, I mean, I don't think this was quite as good as the brawl at the fourth anniversary, like in terms of like, you know, Hero was there and like Joe came out and stuff, but like, I love seeing Super Dragon. Like live, I just marked out so bad. Like it was so cool. Like he does the curb stomp right away. And I think just the vibe that he carried with him. So yeah, this was awesome. And I, you know, I, I did, I also find it interesting how much they center the ROH students in these big brawls, like they really come out and they do a lot. You know, it's kind of like the most they let a lot of these students do is have these big brawls with uh, some of the CZW guys. And I'm not always sure who all the CZW guys are, who they're brawling with. Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if they're like main CZW guys or like, you know, I'm not, I just didn't watch enough CZW to know. Like, it certainly they weren't brawling with like the top CZW guys. I know them. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about the, the use of the students in this role? I feel like in general, Ring of Honor just use the students as kind of extra. So like, if like, fo- like, to- like fodder, like, like they're just yeah. they're just extra bodies. But they were, if but like, to- they were really involved in a lot of this stuff. Anytime you ever need like a pull apart, it was always like the Ring of Honor students, or like someone to hold someone back. It was always the Ring of Honor students, and then some low card wrestlers, and maybe like a bigger card wrestler that was already had a match on the show. Like I think the Briscoes might have come out. In the, this segment, or yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah, the Briscoes were there. Blade and Mikazi were there, but like, if you watch like the the, I mean, we'll get to it later. But the brawl at the end when they go outside, the students are involved in a lot of that, also. Yeah, and, and I imagine again, it's all it's part of. I think when we, we can talk about that that segment, it, it's interesting that main event segment. How few Ring of Honor wrestlers are really involved in like the big beat down? Like, I, I have a kind of thing I want to mention when we get to that, but. So this is a quote from Wade Keller's review, and I think I'm going to – it's helping me build a case. I think my big point on the show, especially by the time we get to the end, is I think how much you like this show is going to matter – is going to depend heavily on how into you are into the CZW feud itself because this is Wade's feeling about the show so far. And I was was fairly – you know, even though we haven't seen a great wrestling match yet or even a pretty – like a – well, we've seen some fairly good action, but like nothing – particularly memorable. I've enjoyed this show so far. This is Wade's opinion of this show so far. He writes, the intensity of the crowd made this segment okay. A pretty weak first hour overall. Like, to me, I was way more into this than than Wade sounds at this point. But again, I can see, if you're not into the CZW stuff and just not into the the novelty of the crowd atmosphere, I can see you going, this is kind of substandard for a Ring of Honor show so far. Yeah, I think it kind of split the difference. I mean, I love the CZW feud and like, it was awesome live, but like, I didn't like the Strong versus Yang match. Yeah. And the, you know, the opener was, I enjoyed it, but, you know, easily forgettable. So I do think this was kind of below average, but then again, a lot of first hours of ROH shows aren't so special. And so like the appearance of Super Dragon, I'd say made it more memorable than a lot of first hours of shows we've reviewed recently. But I think that's a good example of, there are some people that like, like you or like me, Seeing Super Dragon prop pop up in a Ring of Honor show on a main show is this whole, oh my god, holy shit, huge development, huge markout moment. To someone like Wade Keller, I would imagine it's like, who's that slightly soft-bodied looking guy in a mask? Like, why should I care? You know? Yeah. It, it, you know, your, your, your mileage on that's going to depend hugely on just, do you know who this guy is and what the significance of him is? No, totally. But, uh, totally right. Yeah, that brings us to a match that hopefully this is where the show picks up. We'll see, Matt, your opinion. Austin Aries defeats Matt Seidel 
via pinfall in 16 minutes, 50 seconds after he hit the 450 splash. So Generation Next, I wouldn't say explodes. I would say um, cracks. You know, the, 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 the group is still together after this match. but um, They bump into each other. The re- Generation Next bumps into each other. <laughs> that's how I would. Um, Generation I would. Next plays bumper cars. Matt, uh, exactly. what do you think about this little uh, encounter? It's It's interesting because, like, it's another expectations game. Like... If you said 2006 Matt Seidel versus 2006 Austin Aries, you could make the case that these two should have an absolutely spectacular match with like lots of amazing stuff like going really fast and like just big moves all around. And on that level, this match was disappointing because they did not even try to do that. On the other hand, I remember this match as being not that interesting and kind of uh, forgettable and not a lot of intensity, which there wasn't. Um, but because of that memory, I actually enjoyed the match quite a bit. Like, because I think they do a lot of cool stuff here. Like, I really like the early part of the match a lot. You know, it's just, it's the same, like, you know, usual, like, pace in terms of like their work in basics. But like, there's a whole big sequence where Seidel is trying to do a side headlock takeover on Ares. And Ares keeps blocking it, like plants his feet and blocks it, which you almost never see. And to the point where Seidel has to like do a run up the ropes to do the takeover. Like you just rarely see that thought of, I mean, that, that level of thought and work put into a side headlock takeover, you know, and then they have like Ares doing side headlock takeovers on Seidel and he has much less trouble taking Seidel down because he's bigger, you know, and it's, it also, you know, made me think, and I actually thought this a few times throughout the show, this is just the sort of thing you don't see anymore. Uh, like at AEW, even modern ROH, just like spending five minutes working a side headlock takeover. Um, there's also some clever stuff with like a head scissors, like Air, like, um, Seidel is trying to stop Ares head scissors, headstand reversal, the thing, you know, where he head scissors, where he headstands out and hits the drop kick. He keeps rolling over in the head scissors. And, you know, while I was doing that, I was like, oh, you know, that's clever. But also what I would probably do is just not give Austin Aries a head scissors. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be the best way to avoid that move. Um, but, like, I really enjoyed that. It was it was different uh, and thoughtful. And, they you know, they, they, they get more intense. They, they, they hit each other with chops and slaps to the chest and stuff like that. They have a few of those. Um, Ares gets kind of his like what he would become the last chancery and targets the back of Seidel's head and his neck and things like that. And they, they both build up to some bigger moves. Ares reverses a crucifix attempt into a Finley roll and a frog splash. So, uh, Ares is at this point, his frog splash is starting to look really, really good. He's getting really good at that move. Um, they, they fight on the ropes a bunch of times. Seidel hits a swinging DDT and that gets a very big pop and both guys are down. Um, Unfortunately, this is when they have a pretty major botch because Seidel tries to jump backwards off the middle rope into Arana, and they just both fall down, and the CZW fans are extremely happy to chant that they fucked up, yeah. um, which I think is probably like the biggest black mark on the match is that um, – Do you think – to me it looked spot. like that Seidel was just jumped off the ropes with like too much momentum yeah. and that – Aries couldn't just like stop his momentum. So they, instead of like landing for the Rana, Aries just falls on his back. Cause yeah. Seidel, I, I think he just can't stop him from moving forward. 
I agree with that. And that was, it was unfortunate because like, yeah. I think that took the match down a, a pretty solid bit. Um, but they have some cool spots after that. You know, Seidel hits the standing moonsault, Ares escapes the here it is driver, hits the inside out elbow, a few more elbows. And then he hits one of his pretty brutal corner drop kicks. Seidel knees his way out of a brain buster, hits the here it is driver for two, then goes for the shooting star press. Ares moves and Seidel lands on his feet. And then Seidel reverses another brain buster attempt, gets a small package for a really good near fall. Ares kicks out and immediately hits his like hard punt to the head, followed by the drop kick, followed by the brain buster and the 450. I thought it was a really cool finish. Again, they didn't go all out. They didn't have the match they could have had. But I thought, and you know, that botch was unfortunate. It was very conspicuous. But they did some cool stuff here. And like this was a quite good match. It just, you know, if you were expecting like the the best that Austin Aries and Matt Seidel could do, you'd be pretty disappointed. Yeah, I think your review is like the perfect tone because that's pretty much what I agree with. I would say like easily the best match on the show so far, like I would say three and a half stars. But, you know, you you would hope, you know, that these two guys had it in them, you know, their talent level at this point in their careers to steal the show. This was not like a steal the show from everybody barn burner. But it's what you would maybe expect from these guys on the third from the bottom, or, which is, I think, what they were. Um, yeah, I, you know what? You know what's funny, Matt? When I was watching this match, I was – this week, I uh, was listening to uh, – Quentin Tarantino has a new movie podcast, so I thought I would try listening to that. It's it's okay. And um, he was reviewing the Clint Eastwood movie Firefox, and apparently that movie is like a longish movie, you know, did not do great. Uh, I mean, with critics, but it was like... Very independent movie. You get a lot of privacy by using that movie. <laughs> but like, I, I just like... That was stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a really good one. I appreciate that one. Um, there's a... Uh, I guess like the last section of the movie is like the big fancy action-y part with like the stealth secret plane Firefox. And then the first big chunk of the movie is like a more slower espionage type movie and and he was talking about how like when when he first saw it or something or or what what he or his coach were saying something to the effect of like back in the day it was like oh the last part of that movie was really exciting but the rest of it was so boring and now that he's older and rewatching he was like oh like actually my favorite part of the movie is now the espionage stuff and i almost feel like maybe that's just something you get when you feel old because when you were talking about how much you enjoyed like the first third of this match that's kind of how i felt too where it's like I could see a lot of people going the first third, like it's it's these two guys who are really great athletic guys who do can do flying and a lot of cool stuff. And it's them fighting over headlocks and doing that that spot you talked about where Seidel keeps putting the head scissors on and avoiding uh Aries drop kick out of the head scissors spot. And it's like to me, actually that was one of my favorite parts of the match, is that first third, where I bet you when I watched this, you know, sixteen years ago, I was probably like, get to the good stuff already. So it's the maturity, Matt, that comes with age, I believe, that we can appreciate that part of the match in our older age now. But, um, yeah, when you get to the rest of the match, I would say it's like it's not more or less than you would expect from these two. Like, unless you were expecting, like, an actual absolute barber. Like, they do enough near falls. They do most of their signature stuff, but they don't go the extra mile. But they also it also doesn't feel like they're leaving too much on the table either it's just kind of a it's a three and a half star match like you mentioned there was some it was a three and a half star match that they it seemed like that's what they wanted to have they were shooting for three and a half stars yeah 
it wasn't like there was an ultra ambitious match that they kind of fell short on. This, yeah, it felt like they hit their target here. Um, but there were a few like mechanical problems, and these two are two guys. I think some, one of their strong suits are like how well they just nail things and how smooth they are. And you mentioned the Rana spot. There was an, also a spot where Seidel goes for his big twisting moonsault to the floor, but Ares is so far back that uh, Seidel ends up just catching him in the head with his legs instead of like his body landing on him. And then the barricade sign falls on both of them. And it's funny, there's a moment where Seidel points at the ref, like, ref, come over here and take the sign off me. And like Lenny Laird's like saying like, oh, Matt Seidel's having a hard time getting up with that sign on top of him, which I thought was hilarious because it's a very thin like sheet metal sign. And my only thought was maybe Seidel knows like those Ring of Honor like guardrail signs made out of the sheet metal are notorious for being super sharp edged and cutting a lot of wrestlers. So I could imagine Seidel going, you know what? I'm going to tell the the ref to, to, to grab this. I'm not going to even touch this thing. Like I'll let the ref take the hit. And then there was the botched Rana that you talked about, you know, which again, a pretty big botch you wouldn't expect from these two. And then there's also a spot where there's like, Seidel takes a really weird whip into the corner where he kind of walks awkwardly. Like, I don't know what, what, what exactly happened there. But none of this is enough to derail the match or anything. And a fun enough match. So, um, oh, I also wanted to mention, I'm glad you called up that frog splash because I really noticed how beautiful that Austin Aries frog splash is too. And I really appreciate it because so many wrestlers do frog splashes as Eddie Guerrero tribute spots. So you've, we've seen a lot of wrestlers in the last decade and a half, you know, try a frog splash. And Austin Aries just has one of the really prettiest ones, like just a really good kind of textbook really does kind of the crunch in and then extend out frog splash, just very pretty frog splash in this match. Uh, going to the commentary, Prasek at one point went talking about super dragon who was in that last thing. He goes, you know, didn't super dragon, that guy in the mask die in a do or die match. Like, I love that they're kind of shitting on him for, like, being in a tour time match and, like, basically paying him as, like, oh, this guy never couldn't even make it to Ring of Honor when he had the shot. So I like little stuff like that in the details of selling this feud. Yeah, it's so, good. It's good when the ROH side seems a little petty also, you know, because yeah. it makes it more realistic. So um, after the match, Aries and Seidel shake hands. So they are still, you know, they worked a tiny bit of tension early on in this match. But overall, you know, they did not work this like they were hitting each other or that the table was falling apart. They do shake hands. Then the Briscoes attack them. Roderick Strong comes in, but he's taken out too. Seidel eventually recovers. He takes out Jay Briscoe with a flying dropkick, and he tosses Mark to the floor, and they kind of jaw back and forth. So the Briscoes feud is continuing. Um, the Observer wrote in the live notes that Matt Seidel then had said at that point that he and AJ Styles wanted the Briscoes at the 100th show of Ring of Honor. So if that's a bit of mic work, that does not make the DVD cut of the show, but apparently the challenge was laid out right here on the show. Which is weird because the DVD didn't go for the full three hours, so you would think that they would have time to keep in all those promos, but I don't know why yeah, they didn't. It's like six or seven minutes like extra where normally the show come off and will come right up to the three-hour point. Yeah, there was a bit of extra time here, but anyway, it's an intermission, and it's Gary Michael Capetta. He's outside with the Rottweilers of Homicide, Grim Reefer, Julius Smokes. Homicide's wearing a Jerry Lynn t-shirt. 
Uh, Homicide tells Gary to tell Colt Cabana to come to the streets and he'll be waiting for a fight tonight. Uh, Smokes cuts a promo, says they will hate Colt Cabana forever. He says Dusty Rhodes and Blackjack Mulligan looked at cowboy movies to measure their manhood, what, what their manhood was all about, while they look at 50 Cent, Tupac, and Biggie Smalls to measure their manhood. Smokes says Cabana must die. And then after this long, like intense uh, Julia Smokes promo, Gary just deadpan says, Two words I understood. Hate and die. This is, this is one of the best Julia Smokes promos I've seen in a really long time, honestly. Like, he actually says new things. Usually he yeah. just repeats his catchphrases. Like, he actually cut a promo here. I thought it was cool. And then Smokes, after that, he does like the craziest growling bark into the camera that he's done in quite some time. So yeah, Smokes was definitely on his game in this segment. For sure. Um, Next, we get our fir- what I believe is our first ever ad for ROHvideos.com on one of these DVDs with a Gabe Sapolsky voiceover talking about its exclusive content and clips from shows that haven't even be- been commercially released yet. Gabe says you're not getting the whole story unless you go to Ring of Honor video- ROHvideos.com. I remember, Matt, that being a huge deal at the time where – you know, I, I think younger fans won't understand because we live in the instant gratification era where every show is live or even PWG, which is, you know, people complain about PWG. Even they usually within like a week or two have like an extensive highlight video of the show. It was a huge deal for like a fan like me that would often have to wait weeks or months to get the DVD release of a Ring of Honor show to be like, oh, within the first week, I can see clips of a show that just happened. Like that blew my mind at the time. Yeah, um, they didn't do much with it for a while. No. Um, and I don't think ROHvideos.com really lasted that long, maybe like six to eight months. I'm not totally sure exactly um, from this point. Um, like I think probably by the late 2006, it wasn't really – Maybe I'm misremembering, but I think a lot of that stuff was just integrated into the ROH video wire, which would yeah. just be on ROHwrestling.com. And they would, they would go, they would use that as a, as a, a device that they would, um, use to promote stuff for a while after that. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. I would, th- I, I think basically, probably I would imagine basically all their energy behind videos just went from, instead of doing a whole site with different things and free occasional matches and stuff, just like, Let's just pull our energy into the video wires, which I think worked out. But that brings us to the Irish Airborne of Dave and Jake Crist defeating Sal Renaro and Tony Mamluk in nine minutes, 17 seconds when Jake Crist pinned Mamluk after Dave double, I mean, top rope double stomped Mamluk's head as he was on Jake's shoulders, followed by Jake Death Valley drivering Mamluk onto Dave's knees. Um, this is a Tony Mamluk's last match in Ring of Honor, I believe, ever. This is, um, him, you know, ending his second run here, he ends up, you know, going to the newly reformed WWE ECW and spending some time there. Um, this match felt strangely ahead of its time in a weird way in that it felt almost choreographed. Like, and I don't know if it was, but we were talking at the main event of the last show Matt, on the fourth anniversary show, the uh, Aries and uh, Strong versus Seidel and St- Styles match, how... Uh, Tag match, big like spot fest matches and particularly like tag matches back in the day, they did not feel as choreographed. So in some ways, we talked about some of the disadvantages that, but in some of the advantages to to that, like they felt a little more organic. There was a little more stopping to call the next spot, a little more maybe just clovering each other in the middle of spots. Um, This match felt kind of like the more modern wrestling where so many of the matches feel like they are move for move choreographed. Lots of intricate stuff, just a lot of big spots, just a lot of, uh, you know, go, 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 kind of artificial, but still fun in a weird way. 
there's a slightly slow, slow start, and then this is just move after move. And it certainly it does not feel nearly as smooth and as snappy as modern tag matches, but it does have to me a little bit of that feel. Maybe I'm crazy. Some, you know, it's, there's some moments of this match that again have that feel where it feels a little bit more like a dance than a match than a fight. But I, I thought this was like low good. Like it was kind of a dumb, just shut my mind off, enjoy the fan, the fa- the pretty moves kind of match where, and I thought Mamluk, this is one of those matches where we've seen a lot of tags with him and Cell where he's content to be like, I'm going to slow the match down, do my grappling because that's what I do. And I don't always hate that, but this was a match where it was like, the other three guys were all doing spots. He's like, I'm going to keep up the pace with these guys. And Sal Renaro, a lot of tag matches we see him, he basically is just the designated guy who gets the shit beat out of him. Here he gets to do like as much offense as he takes, like if not more. So I thought those were kind of interesting, um, you know, refreshing changes. The match just kind of whizzes by, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy. I, I'm, I might be crazy. I, I did nothing special, but. I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. Yeah, I thought the match had some cool moves, not a lot of flow, and maybe that maybe that's part of the whole like choreograph thing where they do a lot of moves so it doesn't feel like there's a lot yeah. of transitions. Um but like I remember like first of all, what struck me is like, oh wow, they were really thinking of building up Irish Airborne into like a major act because they really put them over big and the announcers really talked them up a lot and they you know, when they got the pin they were like, Oh my god, what an upset. Um you know, um, the other thing that I thought was like, do we really need another like flashy, just like kind of characterless babyface team like with Blade and Mikazi? But then as I watched the match, I was like, no, no, like Irish, Irish Airborne were presented pretty differently. They were bigger guys. They did more hard hitting stuff. Um, you know, they, they, they had some, they had some more, I don't know, like dangerous looking moves, I guess, then, you know, as opposed to like flashy stuff the way that Blade and Mikazi do. Um, but like them, they do some cool stuff. Like uh, Dave, Chris, like he runs up the ropes and gets some really good hang time, jumping off until like an arm drag type of move. Um, Jake also does like a cool backspring into a headlock takeover. I thought that was a really cool move. Um, I um, at one point, um, Mama Luke and Renaro they go for their spiking DDT. Jake reverses out, and Dave is up on the top rope, and Mama Luke follows him up and sees Jake coming from behind and leaps off into the guillotine choke. I thought that was really cool, and I also like the finish. The um, you know, he he uh, he powers out. Jake does of the guillotine choke and just Death Valley drivers Mama Luke onto Dave's knees. Um, so I thought you know it. I I, I also think I liked it better than I expected to like it. Um, despite there not being a lot of flow to it. But it did strike me that, at least at first, it feels like Gabe was pretty high on the Christs. One thing you said that in that is um, you're kind of surprised that they were pushing the Christs when like they already had kind of Blade Mikazi. Well, Kid Mikazi's last match in the company is the very next show. So like they, they don't have to compete with Mikazi and Blade for very long. They're, they're, they're pretty yeah. much, I mean, Blade will be around a bit longer, but Mikazi's done, which again is kind of sad because... I think Mikazi and Blade have looked solid. Like, they haven't had any show stealers, but I don't think they've had any, like, oh, these guys are terrible performances either. But yeah, again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is it just was this era of Ring of Honor was all about, like, just trying a whole bunch of young, of high flyers in different forms and a lot, and none of them sticking. And yeah. But I do, I do want to also make the point that, like, after I thought that, like, I did realize that they were different. 
You know, they they yeah. weren't they didn't they weren't just two teams that did the same thing. They they had they had different auras to them, different attributes. And I feel like they're starting Chris off with a little bit of a hotter, um, like yeah, start in, in definitely. The of, they really tried to put over like, oh, this is a big upset. They just beat the former tag team champions, right? Where, as opposed, as opposed like, to just going even with the Ring Crew Express, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, they definitely it seems like are more excited for these guys. This is you know they've had a couple pre-show matches, but this is their main card debut. So at least initially, Ring of Honor seemed to be fairly excited behind these guys. In fact, I think. I don't know if it's on like the next show or something. I think there's even a note about them saying how their Ring of Honor mansion's pretty like jazzed about the Irish Airborne. But um, that brings us to the Ring of Honor World Title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title by defeating Alex Shelley, scored to the ring by Prince Nana, via pinfall in 32 minutes 28 seconds when he turns to the kettle mutilation, flips it over into a pin. Um, Matt, before you, we get to go with the review, we basically have. A whole other section because there is a lot of mic work here. It's, in some ways, it's as much of a story as the match. A lot of stalling is what was going on here. Yeah. <laughs> but before the match, we get dueling. Let's go, Shelly. Let's go, Dragon Chance. Uh, Br- Brian Danielson poses on the buckles to get a pop. In fact, this is for those of you that love weird Ring of Honor trivia minutiae like I do, this is the first time, and I've been tracking it, waiting for this moment, first show at Ring of Honor history where Danielson like runs up the turnbuckles in time for when his theme music hits that it's the final countdown. Another milestone <laughs> met in ROH history. <laughs> but, you know, there's been a lot of ones where either the, they, the, there was the, all those times where Ring of Honor initially just shut off the music before it got to that sec, that final countdown where the crowd could chant along. And then there was, in a few shows ago, it seemed like Ring of Honor finally realized, oh, if like, we keep playing to this point, the crowd will chant it at, when it gets to that point. And Danielson seemed like tickled pink, like surprised the first time the crowd did. And now this is the first show where he's like acknowledging, oh, like, let's build to this. Let's let, let me run right up the turnbuckle and really call attention to like, yeah, guys, everyone say it right now, which will become, you know, big highlight of his entrance sign that the crowd loves to do. So not a big deal, but I geeked out over it. anyway. So after Dragon poses on the buckles to get a pop, Shelly does the same. Um, Danielson then does it again and grabs the mic. He immediately gets a loud shut the fuck up chant. Brian does his <clears throat> throat clearing shtick, which I love. I wonder, Brian, I wonder how many times in history Brian Danielson has gotten a shut the fuck up chant. Cause I bet it's not that many. Yeah. And you know, CZ, again, it's one of those things I really love about the shows. You get unique crowd reactions. Yeah. Like it's this, it, all the, the one, all the shows that he got it on were probably the ones with the CZW fans. Yeah. Um, Brian points out that there's a little girl in the front row tonight that he, and he was hoping that the ECW arena crowd would have enough class to respect her and not use foul language. Danielson then says that this little, that then he says that this little girl then decided to flip him off with both middle fingers. Big pop from the crowd for this. Huge She's Hardcore chant. Danielson says he will punch her right in the face. Another big pop for that. Brian tells the little girl to not say another word or she's going to get a backhand just like her mother. So, um, yeah, 2006, everybody. <laughs> Definitely would not be something that would be playing right now in 2022. At least I hope not. <laughs> Brian then gets on the crowd. He calls them idiots. He asks them if they really think that Alex Shelley is going to fuck him up. Brian points out that Shelly used to work for CCW, which gets a CCW chant followed by a sucks chant, you know, dueling chants. Brian says he heard a rumor Shelly was looking to go back to CCW. He probably Brian just he probably just ad libbed that, right, to get Shelly yeah. over more as a heel. Yeah, well, that's the, that's one of the interesting things about this segment and this match where both guys seemingly tried to be heels. Like we can get to the match, but uh, yeah. 
Brian says he already kicked the crap out of Chris Hero so much that he ran to Mexico to be with his buddy, quote unquote, Claudio. It seems like there might have been a weird edit cut there or just a weird changing of camera shots. But either way, Brian's next line is him swearing that that was not a reference to folks having anal sex. So, yeah, more 2006. Yeah, it's, um, it's just we'll see during the match. Like it's it's like this was like an interesting segment, but like it's always kind of jarring to see how like inherent homophobia was to all this stuff at the time. Like it's very hard for me not to pay a lot of attention to that aspect of it. Ryan says that even though ECW Arena doesn't deserve the presence of the American Dragon, he's made it, it his goal to put on the greatest technical wrestling exhibition this building has ever seen. We get an overrated chant. Now, Matt, you want to talk about a chance that Brian Dance has probably only heard in front of CZW fans? Overrated. This is a chant you'll hear in another show in the future. A bunch of only. a bunch of them. He would get. He would. Yeah. He would get those chants. Yeah. And yes. and also, by the way, I'm pretty sure the CZW crowd debuted the same old shit chant that John Cena would get. At Brian Danielson. I'm almost positive that's the case. Um, Daniels at this point asks Bobby Cruz to repeat what the crowd's chanting. He tells them they're saying over, you're overrated. He then asks referee Todd Sinclair what they're chanting. Todd Sinclair says they're saying you're overrated. Brian says out of all the wrestlers that have ever wrestled in this building, the Dean Malenkos, the Chris Jericho's, the Eddie Guerrero's, God rest his soul, and Chris Benoit, if you think Brian Danielson's overrated, he's the best goddamn wrestler this building has ever seen. He says, announce that, Bobby Cruz. Then he rushes to the front row again and threatens to punch that little girl who looks very enthused. She is like basically the CCW version of the Miz girl. She is stone-facing this Danielson. Um, the crowd chants for her to fuck up Brian. Brian grabs the mic and says that that girl couldn't fuck him up. They acknowledge some other fan that's heckling him. He says, this fan couldn't fuck me up. He calls that fan Fat Man. He says, if every person in this building charged the ring, they couldn't fuck him up. Then when Bobby Cruz is doing the ring introductions, Brian makes him announce him as the best technical wrestler to work in ECW arena ever. He then gets some booze, but that gives away to a very loud dragon chant. Um, Matt, uh, I wrote my notes here. Between this and what we'll soon see from Shelley during the match, it's like the ECW arena is on top of a demonic pit that brings out the worst in every person that works here because it definitely is is like the coarsest Brian Danielson you will ever see. And I agree, like a lot of this stuff does not age well, but I will also say just the sheer emotion and how he plays the crowd and his charisma, it is a fantastic performance from him. And it's one of those moments where it's another one of those promos where for years after this, people were saying, oh, Brian Danielson doesn't have charisma. Like, watch this fucking segment. He controls this crowd. He is having the time. Of his life. He is playing with them. Like, he is having fun, like, just ad-libbing based on their reactions. You know, he is completely at ease here. You know, he is genuinely, like, good on the mic in 2006. And, um... It is kind of weird that even though this feud felt like up to the show, the embassy were the heels. He basically tries to turn Shelly babyface with the like, oh, he's rumors he's going back to CZW and all this stuff. And I, I wouldn't say that's trying to turn Shelly babyface because again, most of the crowd not CZW fans. Yeah, but when when you're when you're trying to tell the the fans that are there, like, oh, Shelly's rumors he's going back to CZW, like. I mean, you're, you know what kind of reaction you're going to get at least from those CZW fans. I, I don't know. Just, I, th- I think he was trying to just get the crowd to be like split, to have the CZW fans cheer for Shelly. Um, I think that that's more what it was. Because the ROH fans were going to cheer for Danielson no matter how heelish he was. 
Um, but yeah, I know. Like, I agree. Like, I'm putting aside the the stuff that ages really poorly because you kind of have to at certain points. Um, yeah, I remember seeing this live. This was a revelation for me because I hadn't seen his mic work at Unscripted Two yet, and I had never seen Danielson like this. It was shocking to me that he was capable of this. Like, I knew he had charisma in the ring, but like to, the fact that he was like such a good live promo. And I already kind of mentioned this at the Unscripted Two review. This was not just being good. Like, this was being, like, masterful on the mic. Mm-hmm. In, just in terms of controlling the live crowd. Again, like, I do think he, there was a lot for him to work on as far as, like, backstage serious promos and stuff like that. Yeah. But as far as, like, toying with the crowd, having them in the palm of his hands, having fun out there, seeming confident on the mic, he was excellent. And Shelley was kind of the guy who was sort of seen as, like, the better character. Like, you know, obviously he was given a lot of mic time in 2004 ROH and he obviously was better at the backstage promos but man in front of a live crowd Danielson was already like he smoked Shelly like even the times that Shelly did get on the mic later like Danielson was was it like he he just he was just had it all and I couldn't believe it when I saw it live now obviously it's not as shocking because I've seen Danielson be a really good promo and character for years now but I can't tell you how much of a, how amazed I was seeing this live the first time I saw it. I, I was just like, holy shit, this guy is incredible on the mic in this environment. And I still think he was. Yeah. And I, I think you put a great point on just there, which is if there was any weakness Danielson had at this point as a promo, it was if you had to give him like a 60 second backstage where he basically had to recite bullet points or like sell an angle. But if, whenever it was just Brian Danielson, organically reacting to things happening around him, you know, particularly when he was in the ring, like on this show, he had so much comfort than like 90% of wrestlers, you know, now part, now part of what helps is the fact that he didn't have, he did not have to get himself over on the mic. He was already over the crowd already saw him as a huge star. Like what would, if he had walked in front of an, a WWE audience and been like given a mic and said, okay, get yourself over. Could he have done it? I mean, I'm not sure that he couldn't have honestly, but it would have been less of a sure thing. And I feel like this promo is basically as close as we're ever going to get to what Brian Danielson would have been like if like he was a generation earlier and came up in Paul Heyman's ECW. Cause again, it definitely had that vibe of like, he's putting over how he's such a great technical wrestler, but he's, you know, he's kind of coarse. He's calling wrestler fans fat. He's telling a woman, a little girl, he's going to hit her and hit his mom. Like, I feel like this is kind of ECW arena brought out the ECW, which is not often, not a good thing. And Brian Danielson, I, I, and I, I could see an alternate timeline where this is basically like Brian Danielson in the mid nineties. Yeah, and we'll but, uh, see. We'll see some more um, on the next two Philly shows. Danielson does more mic work against the CZW fans, and a lot of that doesn't hold up well either for the similar reasons. Um, but he was having so much fun messing with the CZW fans, yeah. and that will not end on this show. And uh, Matt, so we just talked about whether this promo how holds up. How the match hold up? It's it's interesting. Um, this is a match unlike any other world title match you're going to see in anything resembling a major promotion. Um, so I'll first start with this. Um, the last 10 minutes of this match as a wrestling match were spectacular, in my opinion. Like, just fantastic. The execution, the drama, the crowd reactions. It was great. Um, everything before that, I feel like your mileage may vary. 
Um, there was definitely stuff that didn't hold up. You know, they, they do stall a lot, especially the first five minutes. You know, the crowd immediately starts chanting something homophobic at Shelly. So Shelly feels a need to assure the crowd that he likes vaginal sex. Um, <laughs> then Shelly gets on the mic after some more heckling and he tells the crowd, like, I don't come down to McDonald's and tell you how to do your job. And I definitely don't de- go down on the corner uh, to your where your buddy works, slap the dick out of his mouth and tell him how to do his job, which, of course, is more homophobia, which is just it's just uh, inherent in everything in indie wrestling at this time. But also, I feel like I first heard that line from Mr. Show. I don't think they invented it, but the whole yeah. I, I don't come down to where you work and slap the dick out of your mouth. I, I, I that's where I first remember hearing that joke. Um, but then he Shelley gets on the mic, and again, it's not as good as Danielson, but he does call. He says that this he he, he makes fun of the name, the new Alhambra Arena. He goes like the new ah, la 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 arena, <laughs> and. And then he says he would call it the toilet arena because when he looks around, he sees nothing but piece of shit, pieces of shit. And then he takes a page out of Danielson's playbook. He says the crowd can't tell him how to wrestle. Then immediately after that, Danielson plays up on the homophobia by getting Shelley in a test of strength, getting him on his knees and then yelling, I hear he likes the cock, and then thrusting his crotch in Alex Shelley's face. So yes, this is about as coarse and offensive as you will ever see Brian Danielson. It's kind of shocking, actually, because this is I mean, a wholesome and nice person, but he is just getting into the milieu, I guess, of what things were like in indie wrestling in Philadelphia at the new Alhambra Arena. Um, they do eventually get into some wrestling, though, um, after about five minutes. He, he, uh, Shelley does at one point, after a boring chant, tell a fan, if you think you can do better, get into the ring and... Then there's a let's go fat guy chant. So that's another offensive thing they add on to the, uh, add on to the list of offensive things of body shaming. Um, and the guy doesn't get into the ring. So Shelly calls him a pussy. So this is like being at like a coarse, like underground New York comedy club. I feel like the way they're dealing with hecklers and like just going through like the basest insults possible. You know what I mean? Like it just, it yeah. just, it feels so different than what I'm used to. So, like, all of that makes the match not exactly must-see viewing for everybody. Um, at that point, they do get down to business, kind of. You know, they're, they're definitely being playful. Like, they're, they're, there's stuff where, like, Shelly keeps getting Danielson into a head scissor. So this is the second match where they really work head scissors, and Danielson keeps escaping, um, and, da- and, and Shelly keeps trying to avoid Danielson escaping. This is more playful than the Aries and Seidel version of that. Like at one point, Shelly bites Dragon's thumb to get out of a hold. Um, but they do get, they do get more serious. Uh, the most of the stalling at this point is not, you know, like heckling the crowd. It's more like Shelly going to the outside and go, you know, and going to consult with Nana after slapping Danielson in the face. And then eventually Danielson slaps him back and Nana says, he broke Shelly's eardrum, referencing the. I- I love yeah. that. There's, it's so I laughed out loud. There's a moment. So yeah, where um, Shelly gets slapped on the side of the head. He goes to the outside, and then um, I don't know if you heard this, but Nana go, he goes to Shelly. Goes testing one two, and Shelly's like, I can't hear. And then Nana goes, Oh God, what are we gonna do? Yeah, <laughs> <I just love laughs> yeah and he's really getting. It also references Carino homicide, you know, which is a big part of ROH folklore. Um, 
At one point, like when the CZW fans continue to heckle Danielson, who, by the way, remember in the Rave match, I said that Danielson put his heel persona to the side to be the baby face against Rave. He does not do that here. He really leans into it. And this is like a heel versus heel match, but the crowd is really into it because the ROH fans still continue to cheer Danielson anyway. He really gets into doing this like deep abdominal stretch. And then he does the thing where he grabs the rope behind the ref's back. But like, it's so funny the way he does it because like he has so much fun. Like he wiggles his fingers every time he's about to like grab the ropes with this big smirk. And eventually he keeps doing it until he just holds it in with while Sinclair is looking. And then he does the, I have till five. Um, then, uh, you know, Shelly comes back, he hits Danielson in the face and goes to work on Danielson's leg. So Shelly is working on Danielson's leg for a while. And then Danielson taunts the crowd while teasing a surfboard, does a funk style spinning toe hold, locks in the figure four. Um, and at that point, like, Shelly is almost thrust into the role of, like, fighting from behind as the babyface, which you wouldn't expect. So they, they try a bunch of things. There's no, like, clear, linear storyline to this match. It kind of goes in a bunch of different directions. You know, the main thing is Shelly starts to work on Danielson's neck because he's going to go for the uh, Border City stretch and the slice bread number two. He does multiple neck breakers. I think four in a row, then works on Danielson's arm, then hits a belly-to-back suplex over the top rope, and Danielson's on the floor. And at that point, Nana holds Danielson for Shelly to do a tope onto him, but Danielson moves, and Shelly hits the tope onto Nana, and also, like, has a really scary landing on his own, like, landing almost on his head there. Um, And at that point, Danielson throws Shelly and Nana over the guardrail, and then, for the second time in ROH, does the big flip dive over the guardrail onto Shelly and Nana. And of course the crowd goes crazy for that. Um, and that's when we really start getting into the final stretch where like they're going, they're hitting everything. Daniel hits the missile. Danielson hits the missile drop kick. Shelly avoids a roaring forearm and Danielson avoids a shell shock and hits a German suplex and goes right into the cattle mutilation. And Shelly gets to the rope. So Shelly then hits his own frog splash, gets a two count on that. Uh, Danielson avoids a vertical su- a vertical suplex, so Shelly super kicks him, hits a brain buster, and then the cross-legged brain buster, I guess the TK1 bomb, right, for two. Mm. Shelly goes right into the Border City stretch. For some reason, he releases it, which I thought was kind of strange, but he does this like kind of like shoulder cradle thing, gets a two-count off of that. Danielson escapes slice bread, drops him on the top rope, hits the belly-to-back superplex, Shelly kicks out of that, so Danielson goes again for the cattle mutilation, but Shelly counters into a really good pinning combo, gets a two count. They have the classic like late match forearm exchange in the middle of the ring, start doing running forearms, and then Nana distracts the ref so Shelly can hit a low blow and get a shell shock for two. Big pop for that kick out. I will have something to say about that later because I feel like distracting the ref to hit a low blow doesn't make sense when wrestlers hit low blows in front of the ref in the ne- very next match. But anyway, um, Shelly goes for the Border City stretch, and the crowd is just going absolutely nuts. Danielson makes the ropes. Danielson comes back with a double spin rolling forearm, an extra spin for extra uh, intensity and force. Um Shelly hits a super kick followed by a clothesline, hits the slice bread number two, but Danielson rolls all the way over into the cattle mutilation, then rolls back and hits a get it's a pinning combo, the cattle mutilation pinning combo on the shoulders and wins the match in a flash finish. I thought those last 10 minutes were just like unbelievable, like how good they were. 
Um, before that, the match was extremely memorable. I could see some people loving it because of how different it was. I could see some people hating it because of how different it was. Um, the atmosphere was extremely unique. A lot of the playfulness early is kind of um, spoiled by how some of like the how much things don't hold up in terms of the homophobia and the body shaming and you know some of the coarseness that you mentioned. But so, but overall, if you can't say this match wasn't memorable, like I said, the ending was great. I find it to be a very hard match to rate overall because of how unusual it was. So yeah. I don't know where I'd leave it, but I'd say. That this match contained multitudes. <laughs> That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to this, and there's like maybe at least three big elements. So, yeah, the first thing I would say is those first few minutes, like where they're constant. The first I don't know is five, six minutes where they keep stopping the match to get on the mic and interact with the crowd and stuff like. That's really entertaining, minus you know the social implications, but like it also completely breaks up the flow of the match. And this is a world title match too. So like, there's always that weird feeling of like, you're just stopping the match to like do crowd work, you know, and to get on like a random fan for heckling you. But you know, they do that. And it kind of breaks up the flow of the match. And then what I thought was interesting is when we covered hero versus Danielson from hell freezes over, we talked about how Danielson wrote in his book, that he considers that match one of the great failures of his career because the crowd that night, you know, there were some CCW fans in that crowd and that crowd on that night wanted like a back and the forth, like heavy, intense fight and not like a long technical wrestling match. And I feel like this, he go and he goes like the, he learned a lesson there, but it feels like in this match until the final 10 minutes after the crowd work, it's very much in front of a crowd with, you know, a bunch of CCW fans a lot of very similar to me a vibe of like a lot of good solid technical wrestling but yet this crowd does not heckle it you know maybe it's all that crowd work really earns some respect but you know they take it to the mat quite a bit into the final 10 minutes and this is a half an hour plus match they also show a lot of personality during all that mat work they are really working the crowd the whole time yeah but i did get some of a vibe from it um when i watched until the final 10 minutes, I was watching this match and I kind of felt a bit like the Chris Hero match minus the crowd work of like, this is really technically well done and I'm enjoying it, but it's not quite hitting the way I feel like it should. And it's funny because um, Danielson and Shelley had a Ring of Honor match, I believe, in 2004. And I didn't quite feel exactly the same way, but I did also have that vibe of I started I starting to wonder, like, do Shelley and Danielson just don't click quite in quite perfectly together because their matches are very good but i would expect on paper those two to sync up and be amazing and quite frankly i was kind of surprised where some of my favorite moments of this match are there's a couple instances where they just start hauling off and like throwing forearms or like brawling a little bit very briefly and i felt the intensity they had there you would think these guys like best stuff would be the technical wrestling i felt like when they just kind of threw hands it was surprisingly like really effective and lively but then it gets to that final 10 minutes and yeah um we were talking about the jimmy rave brian danielson match one one of my favorite things about that match was i felt like there was this very nice progression throughout the match and even in their final 10 minutes lots of big moves but they kind of spaced them out and it felt like an organic progression this is a match where it felt like they just flipped a switch where like even where um 
Shelly works over Danielson's neck. It's like he had barely, if any, done any neck work on Danielson the first 20 minutes of the match, even though he had done promos on this show and other shows about that was his goal. And it's like with 10 minutes left, it's almost like he remembers, oh, right, uh, I got to work on his neck. And that's when he does all the neck breakers in a row that you talked about. And that's when he really starts working on the neck. But it almost felt like maybe you should have done some of that a little bit earlier when you're working a half an hour match. And from there, it really did feel like they were just packing in stuff in those final 10 minutes. I did not love the final 10 minutes as much as you did, but I still really, really enjoyed it. It was the clear match highlight, and they were really going all out. And I guess the best way I could describe my feelings about this match was, for a lot of this match, I was going, uh, it's like very good, like three and three core stars, slightly disappointing, but I've been enjoying it, and the crowd work was fun. And as it kept going, and we got deeper into that final 10 that you really loved, and I also really enjoyed, I was like, oh, this is getting better. This is probably going to be four stars. And then that finish came, and that finish is one of my favorite finishes we've seen on Through the Years. I love that finish. I love I love the idea of it, which is, you know, Shelly's been saying for show after show after show, I'm going to use the slice bread number two. So I love the idea that, of course, Danielson's ready for it then. And I just love how fluidly they pull off where, you know, Shelly is running up the turnbuckles in the slice bread and how fluidly you have to see it. Danielson just rolls into the cow mutilation and then from there turns it into the pin. And you can even hear the crowd like be audibly impressed, like how they pull off that finish. It's one of those finishes where it makes perfect sense. It's really satisfying from a story standpoint. It looks great. And to me, I was just like, well, this has to be four stars now because I was like, this is the kind of finish that is so good. I would add like, you know, a quarter star or whatever just for the finish. And I don't feel that way about a ton of finishes, but I love that finish. Yeah, everything was executed amazingly well at every portion of the match. Like there was no there was no point where I'm like, oh, they could have done that spot better. You know, the flow was weird and like there was just a bunch of different directions it went in. So that's why I say I don't really know how I would rate this match. It was like a very hard match to rate because I think I liked the early part of the match less than you, and I obviously like the later part of the match a lot more than you. Um, But, like, so I I couldn't even give it a rating, but it's a fascinating artifact with some great wrestling thrown in. Yeah, and I agree, like, why this is hard to rate, because there are so many different parts of this match where it feels like it's trying different things, whether it's like, oh, this first section's just about working the crowd, and this section's about, like, kind of good technical wrestling but that doesn't really have a ton of purpose and oh now we're gonna do this part about the neck part and now we're gonna do the part where we're going just fucking crazy and danielson's diving into the crowd again and like like it, it it changes not i wouldn't even say gears just like focus you know a bunch of times you know but yet like you said there's a lot of good things like you said it contains multitudes there's a lot of good things within this match even if they don't all kind of can like conform into one distinct thing agreed um, also that 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 um that moment where um, Shelly accidentally topes Nana, that's a great visual too, because he comes in so high, he like topes Nana's headdress off Nana's head. Like it just comes off as he's flying over him. It, great visual there. But anyway, after the match, Danielson and Shelly actually shake hands. So, you know, even though Shelly's a heel and they have kind of done an angle where, you know, where the embassy attacked Danielson, they, they outright do the shake hands here. Brian grabs the mic and he says that for anyone that thinks that match was boring, go stay for the CZW show because that should be thrilling, he said sarcastically. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be fucking thrilled, he said. And by the way, yeah. I, I, I have to admit, there, I don't see any way that anyone could watch that match and think it's boring. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and again, I was shocked that the crowd did not turn on that because I because knowing what happens in a future CZW Ring of Honor dual crowd show with a Danielson match, like knowing uh, like on paper, just forgetting what this match was like, seeing it's like thirty two minutes long, I was like, the CZW fans are going to shit on this, and there's no boring chance, you know, that I could. Hear. Well, no, there was at the beginning because uh, Shelly heckled oh, the guy oh, right, for right, saying it was about the very beginning. yeah well i think that's a big part of it they worked the czw heckling into the story of the match and i think yeah. that helped kind of um you know defang it yeah and then after that they do like 10 15 minutes of technical wrestling and the crowd is good with it you know and this is a crowd we will see czw fans be much harsher on like less technical stuff on future shows but um after the match so yeah anyway the shake hands the Brian Danielson thing. And then he goes, um, Brian says, for those who love great wrestling, they'll continue to support Ring of Honor. And then we get to the main event, which is, I guess, t- supposed to be one match, but was actually two. So uh, the Observer wrote, Dave Meltzer wrote, Samoa Joe still wasn't there as they announced the Colt Cabana versus Christopher Daniels versus Samoa Joe three-way would be a signals match. Crowd wasn't happy with this. Uh, Cabana you really, you really can't tell that on the on the DVD though. Like, you know, the, the the crowd is definitely respectful. I would say they were almost like generous with what the reaction they gave yeah, to yes. what we're about to talk about. Yes. And Dave says Cabana scored the clean pin in a match people weren't into. So that brings us to Colt Cabana defeating Christopher Daniels, scored to the ring by Allison Danger via pinfall in 13 minutes 43 seconds using a folding press. Um, yeah, so this was supposed to be a three-way dance. So like we talked about earlier, the original main event for the show was supposed to be uh, a tag with Loki, Daniels, Danielson, and uh, Joe. Then it turned into, I guess, even though it seems like a really weird random match, like Samoa Joe, Daniels, who are feuding, but then throwing Colt in there. But that was supposed to be like Ring of Honor's tribute to the three-way dance. And then because Samoa Joe, apparently, if you believe commentary, had not even yet arrived at the building when this match started, they decided, I guess, that they couldn't stall anymore. And they just do a singles match. So I looked at my notes for the last Cabana Daniels match that was at Sign of Dishonor. And because a lot of times, Matt, I have such a bad memory and we don't do the show weekly. that a lot of times when I watch a match that we've seen before in Ring of Honor, I'm like, I got to read my notes just to remember what I thought about a match we've already reviewed for the podcast. So I was like, what do I think about the last one they did? And I was shocked how many quotes I had in my notes that I would apply to this match. So these are quotes that I would apply to both of them. Mechanically sharp but soulless. First part is a pretty slow methodical match that is mostly about basic holds. Daniels works over the midsection. Like all these things I said about the last match, I could apply them all to this match. It's near the top of the card. I mean, technically it's kind of the main event. Doesn't feel like a top of the card match. The offense is a little too simple. The pace is a little too laid back. There's a real lack of emotion. There are differences between this match and the sign of dishonor match, which I know we both agreed that was a disappointing Daniel match between Daniels and uh, Colt Cabana. But but, but it had some interesting storyline elements, at least. Exactly. Like, this match is 10 minutes shorter, which is good, but it also didn't have the punk on the outside storyline, you know, like w- which I think we both agreed added to that match. Uh, it gave that match something memorable, something entertaining. Colt's not jokey fun Cabana, obviously, because he's at a different point in his career here, but he's toned down a little bit from working against homicide levels. He does get a little aggressive early with Daniels. He bites some fingers to try and break one hold but he's not like ultra screamy emo cabana but he's also not fun loving doing jokes cabana 
Uh, it was, was definitely thinking, definitely jarring to see him coming out to that music, but like being all serious. Yeah, <laughs> I would say the crowd is polite but relatively quiet. They clap for exchanges occasionally. They don't turn on this match, which, quite frankly, like I would have expected they would have because it's not that exciting of a match. Which um, tells me, by the way, that the CZW fans were not acting with malice. They were trying to heckle for fun, and they weren't interested in actually ruining the show. This finish is abrupt. It's a little anticlimactic. It's Colt backdropping out of the Angel's Wings, Daniel reversing that into a sunset flip, and then Cabana reversing that into the folding press for, like, the flash pin. Uh, I feel bad about cr- criticizing this match, Matt, because I realized this wasn't the planned match, so who knows, like, how late in the game they realized, oh, shit, Colt, I mean, Joe's not here. We're not going to be able to plan this. We're going to have to do something different. But at the same time, because so many of the flaws I have, I see in this match are flaws in their last match, which they did have time to plan. I feel a little bit better about criticizing it. I would say this is like a little bit above average. Like this is one of the, this is my least favorite match of the show. And like one of, this is pretty low on my rankings for matches we've seen on a lot of shows, especially with matches of with two performers of this caliber, you know, in this slot on a show, it just doesn't feel like anything close to a main event. And I, and again, I realized they had a lot of extenuating circumstances, but real disappointment to me here. I, I think I probably liked it a little bit more than you. Like I liked it more than the Yang versus strong match. And, um, you know, I think it was very hard because there were no stakes, and they were obviously rushing at the end, like between this and the Joe match, which we'll get to. But like, yeah, I mean, this, there wasn't much to this match at all. And, you know, it's obviously was under extenuating circumstances. But there was some stuff that I wanted to note, which is, you know, there, again, there's really not much to talk about in this match. Um, but just one thing that I did note, they did another spot where they were working the head scissors, like – um, like Cabana had it, Daniels in head scissors for a while. He was doing push-ups in the head scissors. And again, it's just, you don't really see much of that in wrestling these days. Am I wrong? Am I missing like the wrestling where you do people, you see people working like headlocks and head scissors a lot? Or am I right in that you just don't see it much at all nowadays? We don't, we don't get it like even a lot of like, we're, it seemed like there was an era where law wrestlers who did that had like the fitness gimmick, you know, like if your gimmick was like, I'm just in really great shape. And we don't even have much of that anymore. Like the old, I'm going to find example chances to like do push-ups in a match. I'm going to go yeah. stop the match and do some jumping jacks, you know. Yeah, that's that, true. That. But 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 I'm not wrong that like people work those basic holds less now than they did in the indies like in the mid 2000s, right? I think a lot of wrestlers are afraid to slow a match down even for a second. So even holds are like I'm not even going to work this. I'm going to apply it. Yeah. establish that we've applied it onto the next thing, you know? Yeah. The idea of, like, I'm going to sit in here for a while, and then I'm going to try and think of a way to make it entertaining that I'm sitting in it. That's, yeah, I think that's less common in today's wrestling. Because one thing you could criticize about ROH during this period is a lot of these matches, their first, like, five to ten minutes are, like, very similar. You know, they work headlocks, they work arm drags, they work head scissors, like... You get it a lot, but on the other hand, it's like maybe that's just wrestling and it makes sense for matches to start like that, and it's kind of sad that we don't see that as much anymore. Not that nobody does it, but it's it's not as much of a given the way it definitely was on ROH shows in 2006 and before that. Um, but anyway, besides that side point, yeah, there's just not a lot of stuff. There is, there is a, a cool spot where Cabana actually reverses a regular, just plain old elbow drop. Um, that Daniels does into a crucifix pinning combo. I thought that was cool. Um, 
I also thought another cool spot was Daniels. He blocked a hip toss attempt by turning it into an abdominal stretch. So, like, some really cool, like, basic reversals and counters that you don't really see very often at all. Really, in old wrestling and new wrestling, I, I don't really remember seeing hip toss hip tosses turned into abdominal stretch very often in any era. So I thought that was cool. But yeah, otherwise, just not much to this match. And, you know, that's a shame because it was the main event. Yeah, um, uh, I, I agree. Even though if our opinions are slightly different, I think they're pretty similar overall. There's a couple other notes from commentary uh, before we get to what happens next. First off, I like that we get a three-way dance graphic on the screen, even though this is all done in post-production. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) And Prezak has to say on commentary, like, Samoa Joe had travel difficulties returning from Mexico. And he says on commentary during this match, and I would love to know if this is true or not, because this is kind of fascinating. He says, Joe is five minutes away from the building and will wrestle the winner of this match tonight. It'd be interesting if he really was five minutes away from the building like before this match starts, because then you yeah. wonder, like, couldn't you stall for five more minutes? Then? Yeah, right. You right. Literally, literally, they wouldn't have had to do anything. They could have just been like, okay, um, we we could just leave the ring bl- uh, empty for five minutes. But at the same time, maybe it's not fair for Joe to get him, have him enter the ring and then be, uh, enter the arena and be like, okay, immediately you're going out there and working a twenty minute match. You know, maybe yeah. that was part of it also. Just like you know, no matter when Joe gets here, he's not going to have time to pre- prepare for this match. So let's not have him do the match. I think that probably is the reason more than anything. And as we've seen from the opening pro, we know how long a five minute drive to the ECW arena can really be. So, yeah. Also, um, when they just came off a show where. Jack Evans got to the building and had to run to the ring and do a match, and it didn't go so well. So maybe to, for the sake of Samoa Joe's health, it made sense that they did not expect him to go out there and actually work the match. Yeah, that's the other interesting thing, right? Like two straight shows. That's a great point. Like two straight shows where someone like is arriving at the show like with minutes to spare, probably for their match. You know, like. Yep. It's kind of a crazy coincidence because I don't. I'm sure there's been other times where guys have arrived late, but I can't remember in all the time we've done through the years like one other instance of a guy like arriving this late let alone two shows in a row it happening what was what was going on in these pennsylvania new jersey airports in 2006 (laughs) in the winter time joe Joe getting a flight from mexico and and jack evans was coming from japan so it's it's when you venture out of country matt that's when the trouble starts but (laughs) i'm sure that's i'm sure that is true there are more delays in international flights but you know, yeah. I, I'm such a worrier. Like I over prepare for so many things, and I, I stress out a lot. Like about obligations, that's like one of my biggest nitpicks, fears in life, whatever. But I can like, I couldn't imagine as a wrestler. Like this is something you must have to deal with all the time. Like the idea of, well, I booked a wrestling show for Saturday. The flight says it'll be a 16-hour flight from Japan, but it says I should be there with two hours to um, spare as long as there's no delays. Like, I would be, like, sweating bullets for the next, like, three weeks. I'd be like, oh, shit, it's going to get delayed. It's going to get delayed. But I have to imagine that's just wrestlers' lives. You know also, I mean? But also when you're coming through an international flight, you have to go through customs, yeah, like, which like, adds a, could add a lot of extra time to your arrival. Yeah, it, it's just – I, in a way, it's one of those things your shock doesn't happen even more. You know, the the, yeah. the, the different levels of hangups that can happen in an airport or on a flight, period. You know, and I imagine a lot of these wrestlers where they were working like, you know, going from international to some indie to maybe across the country to another indie the next night. Sometimes even like, you know, how close they probably how often are cutting it. But 
anyway, the other comment on commentary I liked was um, there's this cute moment where Prezak's on commentary and he goes, the the first ECW three-way dance was originally a singles match with the third man coming in only after five minutes. So he goes, in a way, this match is still a tribute <laughs> to that concept. And Gabe Sapolsky, who obviously has, you know, his roots in ECW working for them, he is so impressed by this. It's, it's this adorable moment. He actually gets on mic, and you can tell it's genuine, to be like putting over Gabe Prezak for that comment. He like, goes, that's he why goes, you get paid the big bucks. Yeah, like, like like you can tell Gabe was really like, you know what? Dave Prezak, you like that's a that's a great way of tying it together. It's a rare moment. It's always nice to see someone on their job like get props from their boss. It's weird to see that on a wrestling show, but it's like that was that was that was a feel good moment. But um, immediately after the match, Samoa Joe's music hits, and this is where things get weird. He runs to the ring in jeans and a t shirt. I don't know if I've ever seen Joe wrestle before in jeans and a t shirt. He attacks Colt Cabana and Christopher Daniels. Daniels eventually rolls out to the floor. We never see him again. And Joe versus Colt is on because as Prezak said in the commentary, they decide whoever won that singles match is going to get Joe, which you can say on paper, extraordinarily unfair because Joe's yeah. fresh with it. I would, compla- I would complain next- a lot if I was, well, Colt Cabana in this situation. Although I think co- maybe commentary mentions this. They try and cover like the idea of, well, Joe has also had a disadvantage because he's literally had no time to get ready and stretch or anything. Like he is in his street clothes and he's just gotten to the building, which is a point. Either way, Samoa Joe defeats Cole Cabana via pinfall in two minutes, 45 seconds after a muscle buster. This was Matt. I thought this was bizarre. This was there was almost nothing to this match. Joe's dominating in street clothes. Colt's loudly calling a spot likely because, you know, they had no time to plan this. He probably didn't see him, you know, obviously, until this moment for the day. But the crazy thing is that Colt, fresh after wrestling a, wrestling a fresh top star in Ring of Honor, after he himself just worked a full match, he kicks out of the muscle buster and he survives the rear naked choke. Right. They re- I was like, Joe- they're really trying to put Colt Cabana over here, huh? Yeah, it was crazy. And then Joe beats him with a second muscle buster. And I was like... They're really trying to sell on commentary, like Prezak and Gabe afterwards, like how big a deal this is that Colt did that. And I guess that's because they were at this time really trying to elevate Colt. And maybe they're trying to do this because they're like, okay, shit, Colt, Joe can't wrestle a whole match because he's in street clothes and didn't get to prepare. But, you know, we had to promise some kind of match. So how, how do we do this? How do we kind of protect Colt? We'll let him kick out of the muscle buster. We'll let him survive the choke. But it felt kind of strangely unearned because it's so rare for someone to kick out of the muscle buster or survive the choke. Like just giving it to Colt after he worked the whole match, like just randomly in a, in a match that he's otherwise squashed and under, under three minutes. It was just really weird. It didn't kind of work for me. The good news is nobody remembered it. So yeah. it didn't have any effect in the long run. Um, good and the bad news. The other thing I do want to mention, because there's nothing to say about this match, but the other thing I want to mention, when Cabana does his very brief comeback, he hits a low blow, and it just reminded me that Shelly had to get Nana to distract the ref while he hit his low blow, and I thought it was really funny because I watched the ref while Cabana hit the low blow, and all Mike Keener did was stand there, hold his own crotch, and <laughs> open his mouth and be like, oh, damn, that looks like it hurt. Like, that was it. It made like an ouchy face. So I'm just like, okay, I guess there's really no point in distracting the ref. It's one of my ROH pet peeves where it's like they act like they have to distract the ref even though no one ever gets disqualified for doing stuff like this except when it makes a really crucial storyline sense for them to do it. So anyway, I just thought that was funny. No, that inconsistency, yeah. I mean, I've definitely ranted about that before. But now, after the match, we get to – you know, the real main event of the show, which isn't a match at all, and the real um, 
the real highlight of the show, I think the thing it's remembered, remembered for, immediately after the match, BJ Whitmer comes to the ring as Gabe again tells us how incredible it was that Colt survived the muscle buster and the choke. Um, Whitmer grabs the mic and someone from the crowd throws and hits Joe with a roll of toilet paper. Joe walks in the crowd and he grabs the scared looking fan who it looks like was trying to run away and fans were apparent. It looks like they were fans were trying to hold him back so he couldn't run away. Joe proceeds to drag this fan to a member of security who's standing at the guardrail. This fan looks terrified. Yeah. And I got, and I got to say, clearly Joe was very stressed over his travel because it's kind of fucked up to really go after a fan who was just did something that the promotion has been encouraging for months, which is throw toilet paper. Yeah. I, I believe even the, I think the observer or the torch, someone said like, it, this fan looks like he's going to piss his parents. And like, he, he, this fan looks terrified. This fan looks like I'm about to get the shit beat out of me. I mean, I mean, do you, uh, I mean, I mean, it, I'm not wrong here, right? This was not the best move on Joe's part to do this. No, I mean, Joe has a rep too. And we've covered how many stories there's been like, we've probably said at least three stories in through the year's history of like stories from the newsletters of Joe taking it upon himself to like go into the crowd and like enforce. Sometimes even not when a fan did something to them, but when like when a fan threw something at like Roderick Strong and like Joe, t- I guess as a locker room leader, took it on himself to enforce things. And I would always say one, like you, um, getting hit with a roll of toilet paper, especially when that's normally a crowd participation spot, not that big a deal. And two, let the security handle it. Yeah, it would, you know, it would be, it would be different if, um, if it wasn't toilet paper and it wasn't a thing that ROH fans had been encouraged to throw. If, so when you say let the security handle it, this was such a common part of ROH shows, the security wouldn't have done anything. If Joe yeah. hadn't like that, th- that wasn't something that would have gotten someone thrown out, especially getting someone thrown out at the very end of the show. Like, okay, great. I I, I feel like this was just Joe being on edge because of what a stressful afternoon he had had. That's to me that even though I know he has that reputation, I just don't think he would have picked that particular fight if it was a different day. I will say, although we don't know what happened to this poor kid backstage, hopefully not like a Bill Watts beats the shit out of him in mid-south situation which apparently happened all the time but from what we see on camera it doesn't seem like he's hurt like joe takes the guy he's obviously pissed but kind of holding back he calmly hands it to the security guy and the security guy carries the guy cradling him like a baby yes yeah zach just like picks zach just like picks him up and walks him over he's obviously probably like zach is probably just like all right man like this joe's pissed just like get out of the way like you know i'm sure that's what it is like he's not gonna say no joe uh this guy didn't do anything wrong like obviously he wasn't gonna do that Yeah, yeah my my hope is he just took him behind the curtain just said you know like just go home you know like don't worry about it but just yeah, yeah. Go home. Like, hopefully there wasn't any huge thing for traumatic experience for this, the scared guy who threw a roll of toilet paper. Those but arrogant anyway. ROH fans outside yelling something <laughs> racist at him. Right? <laughs> like, apparently he it happened. Shivved. But luckily, that, there's another roll of toilet paper in his pocket that stops the knife. But anyway, um, Whitmer asks if Joe is still in the mood for a fight. And again, he yells for CZW to get their fucking asses out here. Necro Butcher charges the ring. Super Dragon and others from CZW soon follow, followed by more Ring of Honor guys, and we get a massive brawl in and around the ring. There are simultaneous CZW and Ring of Honor chants, and eventually CZW head honcho John Zandate comes out, I believe making his first Ring of Honor appearance. He's leading a new group of guys. One, I believe it's Wife Beater. Yes, that was a wrestler's name. So so I got to just like do a little tangent. Wife Beater was a crazy name to say in 2006. Imagine how that sounds, saying that, that that was the name of a wrestler now. And the other funny thing is, you know, this was the second 
famous indie wrestling wife beater because you know who the first one was right chris hero right chris hero and like like that was actually like a media thing in the late 90s chris hero wrestled some shows as wife beater and you know you know they say like now like oh you know it's because of the shirt you know they wore the shirt so but like you know it's just it's crazy that there was a shirt with that name and i guess probably people still use that name but yeah pretty crazy Anyway, sorry for the I tangent. Mean, it's classic for that generation, like edge lord shit. Like yeah, that yeah, idea yeah, where you sure. could go, oh, I, I'm a wife beater, but you know that's because I wear the shirt. Wink, like you know, it's that yeah. kind of stuff. But um, yeah, exactly. I do love that there was someone, Chris here, like, oh, I'm, even though he was the one that got the famous, like, oh, I'm going to quickly abandon this because it's going to limit my career. And then there's a whole other wrestler who's like, no, this is going to be my thing. Yeah, this was just his name, as far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wife M. Beater. But, um, so anyway, Wife Beater comes out with a fucking electric weed whacker. And for those, again, who don't know this, this, if there was one, you know, CZW, this was before the age of like Twitter and the big time of social media. But there were, if there was something that was akin to going viral back then for like indies, one of the things was there was a spot where in a CZW show where Wife Beater, I believe, brought out an electric weed whacker. And while someone was like tied to the ropes or something, I remember seeing this clip like from like a shitty, low quality version of a probably from like Kazaa or something of the guy of Wife Beater using a electric weed whacker on like someone's midsection. And, you know, not putting in deep, he would have killed the guy, but like cutting up his stomach. And so he's referencing that coming out here with the weed whacker. Uh, Zandig and Samoa Joe duel with a barbed wire bat and chair, respectively. A lot of the brawl moves outside the ring or even outside the ring, leaving a handful of CZW wrestlers, which are, I don't recognize them all, couldn't make them out of them all, but I can pick out John Zandig, Necro Butcher, Super, Super Dragon, I almost said Super Dragon, Super Dragon, Nick Gage before, you know, he got real infamy as bank robber, woke hero. Um, they're all alone in the ring with BJ Whitmer. Whitmer gets his arm duct taped to the top rope and Zandig grinds his barbed wire bat into BJ's head. And now for the rest of this night, uh, for this main event segment, we keep kind of brawling outside the building that we can barely see because it's too dark. But basically the implication is that almost all the Ring of Honor wrestlers are now brawling with some CCW wrestlers outside. So basically for the rest of this night in the ring, it's BJ alone with like an army of CCW wrestlers. Uh, Zandig staples a dollar bill into Whitmer's forehead and then another one on his stomach. Zandig starts kicking Whitmer in the stomach and then staples him some more. The crowd's going insane for all of this. Zandig spray paints CZW in yellow on both Whitmer's back and on the Ring of Honor logo in the middle of the ring. Nick Gage screams, how you like that, huh? And Zandig spits a drink in Whitmer's face as CZW's theme music plays. A ton of CZW wrestlers at this point start celebrating the ring. Super Dragon almost gets into it with a fan at ringside, then chokes Whitmer with a Ring of Honor t-shirt he's grabbed from somebody. He shoves it down his pants, then throws it back into the crowd. Zandig screams that this is CZW's house, so fuck Ring of Honor. And when you fuck with Zandig, this is what happens. Sanjay Dutt's there. He puts a little CZW sign over Whitmer's head. Someone pours a beer in Whitmer's face. Um... At this point, um, or in his mouth, as the dueling CZW and Sucks Chance fill the building. Some CZW wrestlers seem to be getting into it with fans, but we only see from, like, a far, hard camera shot, maybe designed to, like, stay away from legal liability in case they did something bad. Uh, Zandig yells into a camera that if he doesn't get a mic soon, he's going to fucking kill Whitmer. Zandig finally does get a mic, and just as he starts speaking, cutting a promo, we hear Gabe, the first commentary we've heard during this entire main event segment, say, don't let that idiot speak. Cut, cut, go to black, go to black. And we do just that. We fade away mid-promo 
to a black screen with our second straight as is going to be the trend for these milestone series shows to be continued on screen graphic. Um, Matt, I thought this was loud and exciting and insane. I thought the CCW victory march, it bordered on going too long, but I think in this case, you would rather it air on too long than too little. And it, it, it's interesting that I feel like even me, people remember Ring of Honor losing out in the main event of the 100th show. Like they remember that as the moment in the season where like CDW got its big win. But rewatching this, this came first and it feels pretty monumental in that same case. Like it's Ring of Honor in their big debut in ECW arena, basically getting run out of the arena. And at the end, Zandig basically saying like, this is our house. Like get the fuck out of here and Ring of Honor getting the fuck out of here and getting, but yet, I think an interesting thing about before I throw it to you is I want to know how you feel about this is I don't know how intentional this was on ring of honors part, but I think it was very worked out great for them where if you think about what are ring of Honor's two biggest losses in this view, it's this as the main event of the run hundredth ring of honor show. And both of those losses, like when I'm watching them, they feel monumental, like boy, ring of honor really got its ass kicked, got embarrassed, got shown up. But when you think about what they actually lost, they lost almost nothing. Like this, what happens in this main event segment really? BJ Whitmer gets beaten up in like a 10 to 1 outnumbering while the rest of the roster's outside the building. What happens on the 100th show? Ring of Honor loses a relatively meaningless six-man tag on a show that just has a nice round number associated with it when one of their wrestlers like stabs them on the back and turns into like a four-on-two affair. Like really, Ring of Honor's, t- like in terms of like a big clean loss, like, Ring of Honor really worked it out, so they were very protected. But yet, to their credit, this show and the 100th show feel, when you're watching them initially, before you sit down and think about, really do feel like big losses for them. Yeah, I'm, so watching this whole angle, I kind of have mixed feelings because, like, it's really cool, but I have to say, of all the things I've ever seen in an ROH show, the one thing that I don't think the video did justice to compared to the live experience was this. This was so intense and exciting live. And like, it was cool on video, but I really don't think it was close. The vibe in the building was so different. And like, my favorite part of this entire segment, you didn't even mention because the lighting was so bad that it didn't, wasn't well captured. And that was seeing Wife Beater with the Weed Whacker chase a terrified looking Samoa Joe back through the curtain. Because that's what happened, and you didn't even mention that. Because like that, and like I could see it because from where I was sitting, I was sitting near the entrance ramp, and like Joe was like backing away, like really scared. Like Zandig was there too, but like it was it was wife beater that scared Joe away, and like we never see Joe again. Like that's the conceit that like writes him out of the show. Yeah, exactly. Like that was such a big moment that the video doesn't capture. Like you, it's on screen. It's just it's so dark on the entrance ramp that you can't see Joe's face. You can't really see what's happening. And like and that, there's no commentary again during that segment. So if you miss yeah. it, there's nothing calling attention to it. Yeah. So like that disappointed me. Um, but you know, and like, so they, you know, they keep cutting to outside and like you kind of, you see like kind of nondescript brawling with the students and with the Briscoes and stuff. And yeah, like you said, it's that those guys are distracted, you know, and you do get s- stuff that, you know, kind of goes through, through the entire ROH CZW, um, feud, which is like, if everyone was really all in, you would think Brian Danielson would be there. You'd think that Shelly would be back out, Homicide, but Homicide wasn't there. And they end up working that into a storyline where where they kind of finally get Homicide on board with the CZW stuff. But, like, Danielson was clearly at it with the CZW fans. They were at each other's throats. So, like, it would make sense for him to get involved, but 
you know, I guess he's tried to be above the fray. So it wasn't the full strength ROH star power involved in this. But what I liked about it a lot, and again, this was amazing live. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I thought this was awesome and like, this was a great moment. Um, but what I also really thought made this elevated this for me is that you had some of the real CZW guys there. Not that like Chris Hero and Super Dragon and Necro weren't real CZW guys, but they weren't like legacy CZW guys. They were yeah, all I, they were they were more associated with other companies, other indies. The, but like I, Nick Nick Gage and like just Ruckus and like even yeah. Justice Payne and guys yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, Sabian, Nick Gage, Ruckus, Justice Payne, Wife Beater, and of course Zandig himself. Yeah. were out there. Um and like that made it different. Like I would have I would have wanted to see maybe a little more of that honestly. It's like more like the CZW originals. Even Sanjay Dutt had more of an association with CZW and he'll obviously come back at Death Before Dishonor to get involved in some stuff. Um B-Boy was out there, which is kind of funny cuz he had just wrestled an ROH show and was associated with the Rottweilers, but <laughs> that that's fine. The other thing was when um when Zandig um gets on the gets into the face of the uh the camera person and says like oh get me a fucking microphone i will say zandig was spraying it not saying it <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all i'll say about that but um no but like he was like they this in live at least i don't know if it, how, how you felt it came across but live at least being part of like the ROH fans, the CZW crew and Zandig did a really good job of seeming legitimately like intimidating and scary and like different from ROH heels. Like we're like the real shit. And he actually says that in the promo, which we'll see on the next DVD, but like we're the real shit and we'll fuck everybody. We'll fuck everybody up. Like, you know, I like that's the, uh, like that was the vibe. And I thought they did a great job with that. This was such a cool thing live. So memorable. And I was, so I was, slightly disappointed with how it came off on video. But obviously, like, if you've just ever seen it on video, like, it still obviously worked hearing your reaction to it. So I'm not, I don't want to, you know, yeah. say, I don't want to say it was like a failure or anything. I'm just, I've seen a lot of stuff in ROH, and like, usually the video does a pretty good job of capturing it. Like, I was worried that Joe versus Kobashi wouldn't be captured, or Cage of Death, and it mostly was. This, I would say, you lost a lot in the translation. See, that makes me really jealous because watching this, I was like, I was having a blast. And I thought this feels electric. And so for you to say that, like, this was good on tape, but like not close to what it felt like being there. Like, I, I, I think this is great on tape. So, like, I can't imagine how much, like, what an atmosphere it must have been then live. But, yeah, I feel like I'm doing the thing that we were criticizing earlier, acting like an elitist. Like, I was there, you weren't. But, like, no. but I'm saying it usually doesn't, like, I usually don't think that. Like, that, that that's my point. Like, usually I think ROH did, did shows, like, the, the, they usually translate very well. And I just think that this one, it was still great, but it lost something. Well, also it's something like, it's such a huge brawl. Like, I don't think you really get like the weight and the gravity of it. If you're not in the building, you can see like it happening everywhere and how many people are there. Like a lot of this stuff, it's like, even a lot of these cameos, they're just guys in like the side of the screen for a second. Like, Oh, is that, Oh, oh there's Justin, justice pain, you know, like whatever, like, I imagine, yeah, there's a million reasons why this would work better if you got to watch it live. And it's also one of those things where how rare is it for indie wrestling? Because it's one of the things you can only really do in like a wrestling convention that's running multiple shows or like a double shot like this because you can't afford to fly down like 15 guys to do a run in and not book them for a match. But because of this double shot, you could literally have a segment where half of a company, a rival promotions roster just comes out for the end of the night. 
you know, as a surprise. And yeah, it was, it was such a great idea. And like, it was really well executed. And I think it really helped make this storyline, honestly. And it helped excite the Philly crowd, like to come back. Like, I think this was, this was a brilliant piece of booking. I thought just in general, just a brilliantly booked segment on an otherwise kind of not so noteworthy show. I, I feel like it was Ray Wire's equivalent of like the, the the good version of the NWO beatdown, where you just feel like your heroes are completely destroyed and humiliated, and yeah, when they haven't done it way too often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the early days, but that brings us to I guess our review. But first, I kind of want to frame it with a quote from. Jason Powell of the PW Torch, I saved his review quote for the end, because for those who don't know, Jason Powell was like the heavy ECW reviewer for the Torch and uh, never was really a big Ring of Honor fan. He didn't get it. And he uh, usually was like a much lower rating of these shows than everyone else and nitpicked Ring of Honor a lot more. I believe he was – I might be wrong about this, so don't quote me on this, but he was might have been the guy that when he interviewed Gabe for the Torch early on in Ring of Honor's history, like – Basically, it was like, oh, is Homicide like a new Jack clone? And it was just like, ugh. but anyway, Jason Powell, hard on Ring of Honor. He writes, perhaps you have to live on the East Coast to appreciate the Ring of Honor versus CZW feud because it's just not clicking for this Midwesterner. Most of CZW wrestlers look bush league, and I can't imagine the war will lead to a series of classic matches that will satisfy the Ring of Honor fan base. It might help if CZW had a good mouthpiece who could at least hang with Jim Cornette while explaining what the point of their appearances are. Honestly, most of the CZW rushers look so minor league that Ring of Honor looks silly for not having security throw them out at the door like ECW did back when the XPW goofs tried to make a name for themselves at the LA pay-per-view years ago. Like, I think, you know, obviously he drastically undersells a lot of things. But what I will say is reading all of the torch reviews and all the stuff that I didn't think was, like, noteworthy enough, but I, like, read the reviews and stuff, one thing that really got through to me was this show, your enjoyment of the show, is going to be, I think, live or die on how much you like the CZW angle. Because I really was entertained by the show. But when you really think about what this show is from an in-ring, it's one match that maybe borders on great, maybe not, depending on how you feel about it. Because like you said, Matt, like it's kind of a weird match that has a lot of elements to it. That's Danielson Shelley. It's one good but maybe disappointing match compared to what you could imagine it would be in um, Aries and Seidel. And there's some good little spot fests here. But nothing particularly, like, substantial. There's a main event that's really disappointing, you know? And then you get this huge brawl and this huge angle. And to me, the selling point of the show is all through the night. It's all the little touches. It's like, oh, shit, Super Dragon's here. I didn't expect that. It's the huge angle at the very end. It's the crowd being split the whole night and fighting with itself. It's even the heckling, even some of that crosses the line. It's just the atmosphere of it. It's the electricity in the crowd the whole night. It's It's... If you're not into that, this show goes down like three notches. But if you're into it, I I think it's a pretty good show. Yeah, I mean, I could agree with that. I would say this is like a miniature ROH show in some ways. There's only six matches. There's some of the major roster players are not there. There's no Nigel McGuinness. There's no Claudio. There's no Jimmy Rave. um, You know, no AJ Styles, although not that he was such a regular, but... You know, you get the point. Like it's like they they were missing some some strength in the roster. So they they, they it was it was kind of an an abridged show. Like it was it was truncated. But because they had this big angle, it felt important and it felt memorable. And I think the angle definitely did hit. Like I under I you know I don't necessarily blame Jason Powell for what he was thinking. 
in the sense like you know if if you're not following all this stuff like what is who cares about CZW if if, if you've never watched it or heard of it or in the area you know so i kind of get that and the goal is to build them up into being something major and important um and i think this show took a big step to doing that like if you were not familiar with CZW they felt like a threat after this show you know they didn't just feel like chris hero being a goofball and i th- i think before that they didn't that's the point to disagree with with Powell because he was saying like, oh, these guys don't look threatening at all. I don't know why they just didn't throw them out of the building. Like, there's a guy that came there with a fucking weed whacker, you know? Like, yeah, it's, well, that's, I think it would have really hit home for people if they could see Samoa Joe running away, right? Yeah. Because like he was like a big TV star, you know? Like, that's like, you know, I mean, maybe not a big TV star, but he was on a televised wrestling show and one of one of their main guys. So like that's so that's a big moment and to to allow wife beater to do that um the other thing i will say is i found it very refreshing to have a show where the anti-ccw sentiment was not voiced by jim Cornette. even though jim Cornette's promos were great in their way this felt more like the organic truth of the difference between ccw and ROH, like, not just like the Cornette's version of we're wrestling and you're the, the mud show, you know, and you go yeah. mop up jizz, right? Yeah. Like, no mention of this, you know, shockingly, actually, given Brian Danielson and Alex Shelley's coarseness, but shockingly, nobody mentioned jizz on the show once. This was a jizz free show. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, so, like, that was, it was kind of nice to not have Cornette be the mouthpiece. I mean, he will be the mouthpiece again very soon. But, yeah, I think this this show, despite not being ROH's like going all in on putting on a great wrestling show, which by the way, I, I mean, I was a little bit surprised they didn't try to put more onto this show as like yeah. you know to have some memorable matches in the ECW arena. But as far as the CZW feud goes, this was this is essential, and I think the booking was really excellent, and I think that elevates the show, like you said, a bunch of notches. Well, wh- one big what if, I guess, would be. What happens if this is the Danielson, Joe, Loki, Daniels tag? If that means we don't get the Shelley, you know, we, we don't get the Shelley Danielson match. And then what if happens if Joe shows up late? Does that mean we just get Danielson, Loki, Daniels? Like, do they do it early then? Because we know that was the plan for a hundred show. But think about it. Like if Joe shows up late and the tag is the original match for that, maybe Gabe just goes, fuck it. We'll do the three way right now. Like, yeah, that's maybe a- that happens. Could could be for sure. I mean, because you always when you don't give the people what you advertise, you the, the idea is right. You try to give them something better if you can, right? Yeah, and and in a way, it would still be fitting because even though it wouldn't be the hundred show, it would still be Ring of Honor in Philadelphia. You know, just like the first show, different venue. But I mean, Daniels even kind of talks about stuff like about how you know he took it back to the very beginning with his opening promo. So it would kind of make sense to do it there, but. Yeah, and what could have been like? What? How does the opinion of the show change if like there is just like one crazy banger, incredible match at the very end of the night? But although some people, then, some, some people do hold the Danielson Shelley match in that kind of esteem, I have heard that from people. I don't, but I some mean, people do. I I do think it's like a four star match. I will not put in like a match of the year list at the end of the year, but it it, it it's really good. But. I, I can I can see I can see an argument for being a little bit better than I think. I can see an argument for being worse than I think. Like I, I can see everyone's viewpoints on that match. But either that way, that was um, Arena Warfare. So time for plugs. Through the years at gmail.com is the email. That's T H R O H for through. 
uh, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum that I seemingly check like once every few weeks only now because I am forgetful and no one really posts there because people just use social media. Um, apart from that, next time on the show, we will be covering with the Milestone Series continues with Best in the World, another big New York Ring of Honor show with a main event being Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe teaming up for against Kenta and Marafuji, so that's a big star power match. They should have had they should have had wife Peter chase Kenta away with a weed whacker. <laughs> should be a fun show. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.